Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff and hey, we've been on a pretty good roll of not missing a week for a while now. Sure. I'm happy about that. Yeah. That's, that is we, true. We, we were on a pretty good roll there of not having any consistency. Yeah. So, Which I actually kind of prefer that. I kind of like it when we have a podcast that in the name it says it's weekly and it is no way weekly. <laughs> I prefer that, but we can do this too. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today, Sean? Uh, I don't know. Stuff. Stuff? Well, okay. So uh, the, the day this podcast comes out, Friday, April 4th, the newest Marvel movie is opening in theaters, Captain America the Winter Soldier. I would have been excited about this either way, but the reviews have been pretty unanimously fantastic, even from a lot of people, critics, who had kind of, the, the tenor was they just hated superhero movies at this yeah. point. So I am very excited for this movie. So am I. Yes. Neither of us have seen it yet. No. Um, we're going to see it. Yes. And we're going to talk about it next week. Yes. So this week, however, um, we're going to talk some other Marvel stuff. I think we're going to go through kind of our opinions on the Marvel movies up to now, yeah. briefly, because we haven't... We may have talked about that on a previous podcast, like, and I don't mean previous episode. I mean, yeah, on literally a previous podcast, like a previous incarnation of yes. the show. Specifically, I think it was either the Monthly 10 or the Monthly Stuff way back in the day, 2010, 2011. Yeah. So it's been a while. We've talked about some of the individual Marvel movies that have come out on this show. We've talked about Iron Man 3, Thor 2, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, but we're going to go over those, and specifically we're going to talk about some of the Marvel one-shots. If you're not sure what those are, if you buy the Marvel Blu-rays or DVDs, they're, I think they're on the DVDs, I'm not sure though. Um, That'd be a dick move if they weren't on the DVDs. Yeah, I, I, I should actually look at this. But anyway, um, yes, yeah, so if you buy the Marvel Blu-rays at least, they're sort of short films Marvel produces. They put one on all of their Blu-rays. I think they started that with the Thor Blu-ray. Did Thor come out before Captain America? Yes, it did. So yeah. Thor one, they, they put some out on there. So, yeah, so they're kind of these short films. We're going to talk about them, see if they're good or not. Um, that'll be our topic, but yeah. first let's just talk about some general stuff. Sean, what have you been up to? Yeah, so I've been, I've actually been playing, oh, I've been playing three games. Actually, three games? Well, because I, I finished Dark Souls 2, finally, and that game is really good, but it's super fucking long. That game, especially like, you know, having just played Infamous 2, or Infamous 3, I guess, twice, in the midst of playing through Dark Souls 2, it just made me realize this, like, the infamous Second Son being really concise, I really pre- appreciated that. That it's really focused. In Dark Souls Two, that game, like my old my clock timer at the end, like accounting for some stuff that I know, like there's some extra hours on there. Like I probably clocked in around 55 hours in that game, and that's, that's a lot like of hours. Yeah, and that's not. I didn't do everything. Like there are in the back of my mind, I kind of still want to go in and to fight these two optional bosses just to like say I did it. But then also it's like. This, I was kind of like, this game should have wrapped up by, like, the 30 to 35 hour mark, which is about how long Dark Souls 1 is, and it just, like, keeps going, and, like, every time I get to the next area, I'm like, this has got to be the last area, right? Like, I have, this game has gone on so fucking long, and it just keeps on going, and keeps on going, and then the most disappointing thing is that, like, it's some of the flaw that all the Souls game shares, but the the ending to these games always sucks. Like, the last boss is always tremendously disappointing. Especially in this game, the last boss is so fucking easy. It is so ridiculous because she is super slow. She basically uses, like, two attacks that are incredibly easy to dodge. And as long as you lure her out of this one sort of, like, area that does this, like, curse damage thing to you, that, like, does a status effect on you, you just lure her out of that, and then you just... 
walk up and hit her, then back up and she swings, and then you walk up and hit her and back up and she swings, and you walk up and hit her and back up and she swings, and she's so slow that like my character is a dexterity based character, so he's already fast. But it's like if you had the slowest movement speed in the game, you could still just walk out of her attack range and not even bother with fucking rolling. So it's like it's an issue that all the Souls games have is that their last boss for whatever reason always sucks. But instead of trying to up the ante, they're just like fuck it. Yeah, it kind of feels like that. It's just like, especially in this one, after it just being like, feeling like this slog of like, I just want the game. I felt like you talking about playing Grand Theft Auto V, of just like, this game just needs to be over. Like, I just want to be done with it. Like, and with Dark Souls, it's like, I want to finish it. I just want to finish it. I want to just say I finished it. Because I don't want to bitch out on Dark Souls, but it's like, way too fucking long. Other than that, the game's pretty good. I mean, what's your overall opinion now that you've played the whole thing? Um, I think it's worse than Dark Souls 1 overall. I think, in particular, the bosses. And this is probably... It's kind of hard to tell if, like, the game is easier or if it's just because I came in already being good at Dark Souls from Dark Souls 1. But it definitely feels like the bosses are very... Like, most of the bosses in the game feel very samey. Like, you can use the exact same tactics to beat them. They overuse the sort of going into a boss fight and fighting like two or three bosses at the same time in the same room and that's just gets really annoying because it's because most of the boss fights in Dark Souls 2 it's like I know how to beat them they are not hard but if there are multiple bosses the boss fight takes forever because you just have to wait for all their attacks to line up in such a way that one of them is vulnerable so it's just like you're wait standing there with your fucking shield and dodging attacks and it's like I know how to beat the boss it's just I have to wait forever for it to open up for an attack because you know the attack patterns are kind of random with the AI so that it does that too much like I said the game is too long the game is too long and yeah I don't okay. know like other than that like everything else is good about Dark Souls is good about Dark Souls 2 but I think, and like Dark Souls 1, I think the first section of the game, like sort of the first half, is way better than the second half. Because by the time you get to the second half, I think Dark like the game has sort of like played all its tricks, and then it just becomes like a matter of going through the motions and sort of actually killing everything. And then also, there's, there's a, in the second half of the game, there's an era, there, there's an area that if my character did not use bow and arrows, because my character used, like, a katana and bow and arrows, because I was dexterity, I have no idea how I'd go through the area, because it's just filled with enemies that shoot magic from you from super far away that homes in on you. So it's like the only way I could bother getting through the area is sniping them first, like, way far away with my bow, and then walking through, because the area is also populated with a bunch of melee enemies. So this is like Halo 2 Jackals. Yeah, it's almost like that. It was just like, and if I was a character build that just only used melee weapons, I have no idea how I'd do it because it's just like you just be yeah, you'd be getting pegged constantly from everywhere with these magic missiles. But jeez, that sucks. Yeah. So, yeah, I think game length is such an interesting thing, you yeah. know, because it it speaks. A, you know, I've played a lot of long games that I feel like definitely peter out. Yeah. You know, and I think it speaks volumes to part of why we love the Persona games that those yeah, are the, the longest games we've ever played. Yeah, easily. And yet they don't peter out at all. They get yeah, better yeah. and better. Yeah, pacing is something that's so tricky for most games, and and yeah, like usually I feel like it's a thing where in the middle to me the game usually sags and I get kind of yeah. bored, but then at the end it sort of picks up again and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. But that's usually that happens because of the story. It's this Dark Souls game. The Souls games basically have no appreciable story. Like, all the story yeah. is in the setting. It's like, there's nothing to motivate me. And then I should also say that if, like, you are into the lore of the series, there is some interesting stuff with the dialogue. But the, in terms of, like, the story part of the ending, 
like I swear to God, the last cutscene in the game is almost the exact same as like the the last cutscene in Dark Souls. Like I felt like when I beat the game, I was like, this is the exact like I this is the exact same fucking ending as last time. Like the only difference is that you don't have a choice. Whereas in Dark Souls One, there are two different endings. But super fucking hilarious about the end of Dark Souls Two is that there's literally while you're watching the last cutscene, there is this like the dialogue playing over it of the the Emerald Herald, who's like one of the main characters in the game. She's sort of like she's the person you go to to level up. She's talking about all the shit. And she's like saying, "It's like now you have to take the make the choice of whether to take the throne or walk away." And so I was like, "Oh, like that's the like the exact same thing, more or less." That Dark Souls One asks you, but then you actually get the choice. Dark Souls Two, like the same cutscene that has that line of dialogue, is the last cutscene in the game. Like it never gives you the choice. It just says, "Now you have to make this choice," and then your dude just sits down. And so it's like, well, okay, like, yeah, he just made this, I guess, just, like, I have no issue. It's not like the multiple endings to Dark Souls 1 was a great aspect of the game. But you didn't, the like, fact, import your save or yeah, anything? but the fact that they say, now you have to make this choice, like, literally, like, that is verbatim. They say, now you have to make a choice, and then they, like, that's, like, you never get control back in the game. Like, that's the last thing that happens, and it goes to the credits. Like, wait, what? Where's my choice? You said I had to make one. So I'm interested on this as a subtopic. Yeah. With game length. Okay. What are what are some examples of games that you feel like are in you know not necessarily this gate length, like length range that's big but yeah, like long great. games that you either feel are too long or kind of do it perfectly like what are some extremes for you when you think about um, these? Too long. Like Grand Theft Auto Four is definitely that game is too long. Red Dead Redemption is like Red Dead Redemption is better than Grand Theft Auto Four, but that's Red Dead Redemption is one that kind of sags in the middle. Yeah, but God, the the last couple hours are so good. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I was talking about. It's like when you get to the end, like all the story stuff is so great, they just sort of barrel through. Far Cry Three is a game that would like that is a game that has like a whole third act that feels completely extraneous because that's like where they have the cool villain Voss who they set up at the beginning and he's fucking awesome. But then he, you know, spoilers, but whatever, the story of the game sucks at the end. <laughs> he gets killed in the at the end of the second act, and then another villain sort of takes his place. And you have, like, this whole other island that you go to and, like, basically have to deal with that villain. So it's, like, literally a whole other third of the game that because of the story, it just, like, feels completely unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. I think the ones that come to mind for me of games... I mean, those are all, yeah, great choices for length as being too long. Ones that I think of in that long range that feel just right to me that do it impressively. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of an interesting contrast. I think uh, in the Mass Effect series... Yeah, Mass Effect. You've got... I think think Mass Effect 2 is perfect. Yeah. Game length, I mean, in part because it's so character-focused, you just... You always want more, and I... Yeah, it almost, like, at Mass Effect 2, the pace is almost, like, episodic in a weird way with how, like, you kind of jump from character story to character story. But nothing ever sags, and I think part of... I think part of the key there is that the pace is so player determined yeah um, I mean I know you and I play Mass Effect the same way we do everything yeah yeah exactly absolutely everything some people don't play it that way but either way the pace is self determined and it feels really comfortable I think that's mm-hmm. part of why Persona does it so well yeah. the pace is so much what you make of it um, Persona is not as open in that way you're yeah. not you know picking which missions you're going to go on necessarily but it's yeah. got that similar because of the social link structure you can choose what you're going to do every day yeah. um, and it's a lot it's easy to pick up and put down at, at will mm-hmm. um, there's that kind of thing I think Mass Effect 3 does it pretty well too and, and man Mass Effect 3 is long but it's such a breakneck pace throughout yeah. it's much less player determined but it's because of the, the story that's going on mm-hmm. there's really there's no way for that it to sag at that yeah. point yeah. but I think Mass Effect 1 which is significantly shorter than the others 
does have pacing issues in terms I of do, I agree. if you play it in certain ways. So it's this it's this interesting thing. Length isn't so is, isn't as important as kind of how you pace it. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like like you know you can have a fucking hour or a hundred hour long game. Like yeah. basically the if you count the answer onto my like Persona Three playtime, that's like an hour a hundred hours in that game. It's like totally fine. Yeah, I don't have any problem with that. Then it's like you can ask me to play. I don't know, like fucking, like the Gears of War campaigns, I feel like they're too long. Or Half-Life and Half-Life yeah. 2, both of those games are too yes. long. And by the time you get to the end, it's just like, I, like I'm done. Like you've Here's done a- everything you need to do, and you're just putting in more content that doesn't change anything. Or if it changes stuff, like in Half-Life 1, you go to Zen, it's just like, it sucks. Because you just like stripped out mechanics, more or less. But it's funny, when I think of really well-paced games, I often jump to certain uh, shooter games. Like Halo, yeah. all of those I think really solidly paced. They yeah. don't sag, and they don't go too fast in parts. Um, for the most part, maybe Halo Four is a little different. Um, and the other ones yeah. maybe too insubstantial in some ways. I agree. Yeah. But you know, uh, then I think of yes, Gears of War is like this odd man out on that for me because I never played one. Two is one of the worst paced games I've ever yeah, played. Yeah, Gears of War Two's campaign is what I'm thinking of speci- yeah. very specifically. What I'm thinking of a poorly paced shooter campaign. You just you point. just it, it grinds you to the point where you just don't want to play it anymore. Yeah. And it's not particularly long. It's not a thirty yeah, hour yeah, campaign. Yeah, it's like an eight hour probably long yeah. campaign. This but God, it feels longer. Gears of War Three they got it mostly right. Yeah, um, it definitely there are ups and downs. But also Gears of War 3's gameplay is just so much fun and, and yeah. so well balanced. And that's part of it too. But I think this is an interesting point here, you know. Because it's 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 just it's a weird reaction thing we have to games. Yeah. Because length... It's not like a movie where you can say, okay, movies are between 90 minutes and 3 hours. Yeah, that's like a and movie can yeah. be too long and that can suck. But it's not torturous, yes. you know, in the same way of like with Dark Souls. Where I literally played probably 15 hours of that game just being like... This game has to be over. Like, I, it has to end now. Like, that's a, like, I could have finished this game two weeks ago, and I would have been super happy about it. It was like, yeah, it's done. If I had been kept on playing it at the same pace as I had been, it's like I could have burned through those 15 hours super fast. But it's like it gnawed at me so much of just how kind of, like, done I was with the game, and it was just kept on going, that I could only play it piecemeal for, like, the past two weeks and just, like kind of pick at it and kind of go one area at a time and I finish an area and put it down it's like the game's not over yet god what do you think of the pace of uh, or game length of the Assassin's Creed games because I've only played four too long yeah yeah. Assassin's Creed 4 is better but all of those other games I think are definitely too long and I thought 4 was too long especially in the middle I think there are parts where it just gets it's bloated the the thing that helps Assassin's Creed 4 and again I can't compare to the other ones is it's such a content rich game yeah there's so much side stuff in it that it kind of has the Mass Effect-y thing of like if you can kind of pick your own pace at some times in terms of like what you choose to do that the other Assassin's Creed games don't have as much as that yeah like I could never in Black Flag almost never play a mission and then go immediately play another mission that felt like a drag to me if I did it but luckily there was never and there still is and I could go back and still do more side shit in that game Um, but yeah so I I just think this is an interesting topic yeah it's it's an interesting sort of thing to criticize about games and like look at how it uses its length because game, the, the length of games changes, can change so much. Where it's like, you know, you have a game like Gone Home that's like two hours and it's awesome. Or then you can have a game like Persona 4 that's like 90 hours and it's fucking awesome. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a weird thing also I think in game criticism where I don't know what the benchmark is when people say a game is too short or too long. Yeah. Because I think there are other, it's the same with movies. I think there's different factors going on here. And so like some, you know, 
if you were to say Infamous Second Son is too short or too slight, I'm thinking, to me, it's like, this was a very well-paced game. Every yeah. part of it felt like it had weight. It had so few of the problems I feel like a lot of games have now in terms yeah, of pace. Especially open-world games yes. are the ones that have that saggy part in the middle. Yeah. And this doesn't... Yeah, Infamous Second Son never sags. That's an yeah. important thing about it. But I think some people still have this vision of, oh, it's open-world. I have to get 60 hours out of this. Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah, it's like, I want the game, I want a good whatever amount of time it is, and then past that, you know, if like, you know, if the second son was only two hours long, I'd be fucking pissed because I paid $60 right. for it. But as long as the campaign, let's say, is like six hours or more, and as long as like it uses that time very, very, very well, I'm more or less okay with it, even if I paid $60. Oh, absolutely. Like, I don't know how long Tomb Raider is. Maybe it's 10 to 12 hours. Um, but you know, I played the. I bought the definitive edition for PS4. Yes. It was sixty bucks. Feel totally justified because it those however long that is, ten twelve yeah. hours. It's so good mm-hmm. that it's like I, I, I sixty bucks is totally justified. Yeah. So it's this weird thing. It's also like with movies. I often see film a lot of film critics. If you just peruse Rotten Tomatoes, any movie that like breaks that two hour mark, there are some critics who are just like too yeah. long. And it's like there's no other criticism to it. It's just too long. And I don't know what too long means. Yeah. There's there's other what you actually mean is poor pace, not enough story. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like calling something boring, and most of the time you mean something deeper than that, and you're yeah. not explaining yourself. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what other games have you been playing? You had yes, two others. There, there are two others. Uh, let's start with uh, Mercenary Kings, which is the title that just like a day or two ago got put up on PS Plus for PS4. I've been sort of I haven't played a whole lot of it because uh, it's just like I think the, it's kind of a like 2D metal sluggy kind of game where it's just like you kind of you know go from left to right when you go into missions and shoot dudes, kind of explore. But has this whole like crafting, almost kind of Borderlandsy element in terms of you. It feels like once the game opens up more, you'll have a lot of different kinds of guns you can make out of these different parts from different like crafting materials you get when while you're on these missions. So like, even though I'm only probably an hour, maybe two hours into the game, and I've only really unlocked enough parts to make like an assault rifle as opposed to the pistol that you start with, I. Th- and I haven't had that much fun with it yet. Like, I think if it opens up a lot and you get a lot of these, uh, like, unlockable gun parts, it could be really cool in terms of being able to mix and match that stuff. So it's like, I can't... Like, I just... Like, the thing I really wish the game would do is just, like, almost right off the bat, like, after your first training mission, you get in there and then it has, like, a bunch of different weird shit that you can unlock right away and, like, lets you make a your own gun, like, right off the bat or something. Because I really want to just see what the rest of the game has to offer but I don't want to get through the missions with like this really standard assault rifle to do it because it's like most of the game play just feels very sort of pedestrian whereas I'm like 99% certain certain that it will get a lot more interesting once you get the more advanced guns and I guess that's been my feeling on a lot of the PS Plus PS4 games that have come out where I start playing them and I think this is a cool idea there are cool things going on here I don't know if I have the patience to get deep enough into this to see what that is I felt that about Contrast I felt that about um, I got to a point with that with um, what's the horror one that came out Outlast Uh, Outlast yeah um and just to some of these, it's the same kind of thing for me. I have not tried Mercenary Kings yet. I've I think it's there. worth a try. Like I think okay. it's, and especially like just if you play it one mission at a time because the missions are like five to ten minutes tops. I think like because I've been kind of you know been doing something where it's like I finish up an assignment or like some reading for a class that I'm doing, and then I'll play a little bit of it, or like I'm watching some anime or something, and then I play that in between episodes or something. It's sort of a palate cleanser. That's kind of fun. But yeah, like that's 
I'll probably play more of it and maybe talk about it later. Like, if it opens up more and becomes interesting, I'll stick with it. But if, like, it stays like this for an hour or two more hours, I probably will just, like, say, nope, I'm not going to... I, you know, I just got off of a game that I sort of had to, like, grind my way through. Yeah. I don't want to do that again. That can sour you on things. Yeah. But on the complete flip side, the other game I've been playing that is not in any way a grind is Luftrausers, which I bought on the Vita. I think it's also available on PC and PS3. But uh, it's not it's, on PS4. I no, it's definitely okay. not on PS4. It'll probably come to PS4 eventually. Yeah. But it's it's a really really good Vita title because it's basically it's it's a very arcadey kind of game where you're uh, it's 2D and you play as a, basically you're an airplane and but the thing about the games the game is that the controls are really really fascinating particularly the movement where it almost feels like it's like a space shooter in a weird way like although like a space shooter where you're in a gravity well because it's you sort of it's set more or less in world war ii like it has this weird sort of world war ii propagandic like aesthetic to it but you sort of thrust and then a lot of the movement in the game is like you thrust in one direction and gain momentum in that direction but if you're not pushing down on the d-pad like forward on the d-pad you're not like gaining any momentum like so you're like making very calculated thrusts and sort of spinning your ship in the air to aim and take shots and then trying to move and like it's very sort of it's almost like a ballet it's really hard to describe but it it takes a while to get used to because it's very interesting controls and i have to say anyone trying out the game use the d-pad to control because at first i tried to use the analog stick that does not no do not try to use it it's so confusing because you basically just rotate left or right and then go forward. Like, that's only real movement control you have. And so trying to use the analog stick this is very, very confusing because you feel like you should be able to control it almost like a twin-stick shooter, and that's not what it's like. The, the interesting thing about the game is that you have these three different parts on your ship. You have the gun, the sort of the, the fuselage, the body of the ship, and the engines. And so you, as you complete challenges for each of the parts, you unlock successive parts. So you start out with a very basic ship, and then you very quickly unlock, like, instead of a machine gun, a laser beam, and then maybe, like, a, like, faster version of the engine, but one that makes it harder to turn while you're boosting. And then you get, like, a fuselage, like, the nuke one that when you die, you blow up and it kills everything on screen. Or you have another one that makes it so that when you ram into ships, you don't take damage, but you have a less overall health. So that one is very interesting because it's, you instead of shooting stuff, you're more trying to zoom across the screen and ram into everything and kind of get out of danger. And then another interesting component about the game is that uh, you have regenerating health, but you only regenerate health if you're not shooting. But you also are trying to build up a combo multiplier that obviously only goes up while you're killing stuff, and if you're not killing stuff for a certain amount of time, the combo multiplier depletes and you have to start it up again. So it's this very interesting sort of like push and pull of, I want to get this combo up, I want to complete these challenges, I need to kill stuff constantly to keep the combo going, but if I'm shooting then I can't regenerate my health, so I need to regenerate my health. So it's this very delicate balance. And each time you play the game, like, I don't feel like I'm particularly good at the game yet. So, like, each session, I've probably like, the longest time, like, in there fighting stuff is, like, four or five minutes before I've died. And most of them, it's like, I'm out there for, like, two to three minutes, and then I've gotten blown up. But then I kind of jump back in there again, and usually I'll have completed at least one challenge while I'm out there fighting. So I, you were constantly, like, unlocking pieces and stuff, so... Sounds like a good portable game. Yeah, it's a very good portable game. It's just like, it's really, really fun. The combat is so much fun. And all the different pieces for the ship change the way you play so much. Like, you get one of the really interesting ones is you get this uh, the an engine that allows you to go... Because you're fighting, like, on the water, or right above the water. And so there's planes 
above the water and then there's a bunch of boats and like battleships on like floating on the water and so for all the ships other than if you pick this engine going into the water causes you to take damage but if you have this one engine going to the water doesn't cause you to take damage so instead of you flying it's like you're kind of like diving down into the water so you can get out of danger's way and then come up like behind a ship and sort of spin around in the air and shoot it and get out it's really really cool nice yeah. and I was looking it up on the PlayStation store here it looks like it's got kind of an interesting graphical style too yeah yeah the graphics are awesome the, the music is really really great it's got a great sense of style it's just really 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 a really finely made game and like knows exactly what it is it's like going in there and just like blowing shit up and getting your ass kicked like really fast it's really satisfying I'll say I think PlayStation's been killing it with good indie or smaller games yeah. recently some of them are, are older and they're just coming to PlayStation for the first time but interesting like outside of the PS Plus stuff I've gotten recently Towerfall Ascension mm. which is a really fun uh, couch multiplayer game it's on PS4 definitely check that one out and uh, Fez just came out for everything on PlayStation yeah. cross by and, um, Which I think Fez is now officially on every video game platform imaginable. Like, pretty much. Like, I feel like every three months I hear about Fez coming out on something else. And by all reports, it runs better on PlayStation than it has anywhere else. Mm. Like on Xbox and PC originally, as I understand it, it had significant frame rate issues. Yeah. And it's very it's smooth, locked at 30 on, on all the PlayStation platforms nice. you can get it on. Looks great on PS4. I, I, I can get it on PS3. I obviously haven't loaded it up there. And I have it on my Vita, and it's another one that um, you want. I think you want to play it on Vita. It's just so the Vita is so perfect for that kind of game. Yeah. And um, it's one of those games. Also, I think when you blow it up to a TV, it doesn't look quite as good as when it's just in your hands on the Vita screen. That's kind of how I feel about Loot Brothers too. I yeah. haven't actually seen it on a TV screen, but it's like there's something so intimate about having it like right up in your face on a. And since the game only uses the D-pad and one button, it's like you don't yeah. feel like hampered by the controls. And that D-pad on the Vita is very yeah, it's very, very good. Nice. Good D-pad. So yeah, I mean, definitely lots of options if you like that kind of game and, and nice cheap ones. I, I'm sad I haven't had more time to play Towerfall and Fez recently, but that's because I've been playing a game of my own. Yes. So I want to talk about this now. So as mentioned last week, I've been playing Bravely Default, which is the sort of Final Fantasy successor JRPG for the 3DS. Um, I'd only played it briefly last week when I started talking about it, mm -hmm. and I said I was I was really digging it so far. And man, I the more I play that game, the more I love it. It is a fantastic game. I I, I made this statement last week when we were talking about Infamous Second Son and kind of our recommendation for it. I said yeah. I don't know how often I would actually come you know encounter a game where I would say it's that is definitively worth buying that system for. Mm -hmm. Bravely Default is one hundred percent worth buying a three DS for. And and the 3DS luckily has lots of other good software right now, yeah. especially if you like that kind of game. You've got Fire Emblem, you've got a Persona game coming to it, you've got um, all the Etrian Odysseys, you've got yeah. um, Shin Megami Tensei 4, there's, you know, there's yeah. lots of that kind of content coming to it. But Bravely Default, man, it is maybe my favorite game I've played on the 3DS besides uh, Super Mario 3D Land so far. But it's, you know, I'm 13 hours in or so, um, so there's lots, lots, lots more to go. Yeah. This is like a 40, 50 hour game. Um, so, you know, anything could happen, but I would not, no matter what happens after this point, I've had so much fun with these, you know, 13 hours. I, I really do love this game. I think it's, it's so interesting to me because it is using, you know, sort of this basic JRPG format that, that goes back to old school Final Fantasy, yeah. which is... You know, the, the core gameplay element is going through dungeons and going through the open world and having um, turn-based battles yeah. and random encounters and stuff. 
And I think one of the reasons, or one of the core reasons, we've talked about why we love Persona so much, yeah. is that it really innovated on that JRPG formula, mm-hmm. where it added this whole other side onto it so that the pacing was better, you have more to do, you can appreciate the battle system. Yeah, but, since you don't have to engage with the battle system constantly. Yeah, you can really appreciate it. And I think what is so amazing to me about Bravely Default is that it is a great modern JRPG um, built on the foundations of sort of old school JRPGs and instead of sort of um, coming up with this whole second side to put on there to kind of keep it fresh they've just gone to those sort of foundations and made them so rich and added so much to it and the game is so content rich that it feels very new and very modern and really fresh and vibrant and just so fun to play um, but it also fulfills that same kind of uh, you know itch you get from playing you know, old school Final Fantasy flight, those kind of games. Mm-hmm. Like, I was on a kick earlier this year where I played some Final Fantasy. I played all of three and, and most of four. Um, and, and that's Japanese three and four, yeah. obviously. Um, and, you know, I really... And it's funny because when I was playing them, the story in four is obviously much better. Yeah. Uh, Final Fantasy four is like the birth of storytelling in RPG games. More or less. Yeah, it's, it's you know, a really developed story, really good characters. It's amazing the kind of stuff they did in that game with atmosphere and tone and setting and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But gameplay-wise, I don't find it nearly as interesting as Final Fantasy three, and that's because three has this job system. Yeah. It's a lot more open. It's a lot more customizable. I really like that side to it. Um, and it's something Final Fantasy has kind of waxed and waned on over the years. And, and, of course, then Final Fantasy just at one point kind of went off and did its own thing and, yeah. and became something that resembled Final Fantasy... Not at all. If you want to expose yourself to that, Final Fantasy X and X-2 very <laughs> recently came out on the Vita. So Play Dress Up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Get no. that dress fear, dog. But man, what I love about Bravely Default, in, in kind of, just in sort of summation, is that it's, it absolutely fulfills that side um, that was being fulfilled when I played Final Fantasy III, where it's a, it's a very deep game, there's a lot of customization to do, there's a lot of just the kind of jobs you choose and the way you level your characters, um, goes into those encounters so much but there's so much more of it than there was in Final Fantasy 3 like this is a game where for just, just one of my things about RPGs I love spending time in menus and doing equipment and, and that kind of stuff and choosing jobs and going through things like that and man if you play Bravely Default you spend a lot of time doing that kind of stuff and it's just this nerdy thing I really like and so that's definitely a big side of Bravely Default but it's also got a story and it's a pretty good RPG story I like it it's, it's very it definitely uses a lot of sort of archetypes of this genre. Yeah. If if you like your crystals in Final Fantasy games, Bravely Default is like fucking porn for you because yeah. the crystals are everything. There's a crystal orthodoxy. The villains are the anti-crystalist movement. Your character, Agnes Oblige, is the Vestal of the Wind Crystal and you have to go find her friends who are the other Vestals and you have to reawaken the crystals and there's these rituals you have to do. It's, it is all crystal all the time. Yeah. They really went it's for almost it. Almost like the people making the game were on crystal meth. Yes, almost. that kind of thing. <laughs> All right. So crystals are a big deal. It's I think it's got good characters. One thing I will say is I noticed in a lot of reviews I went and looked up of Bravely Default. Now that I've started playing it, mm-hmm. is one of the things they would constantly say of why they maybe graded the game down a half point or something is that they said the characters weren't all that interesting in part because the voices were kind of grading and annoying. Clearly, they were playing this game in English. Yeah. I realized about an hour in. Oh, I can switch this. Oh, Norm- thank God. Yeah. Normally, I don't even look for that because you can't yeah, do it. Yeah, it's super rare to ever have yeah. Japanese. 
voice option in American games. And we're going to talk about this, how much Bravely Default, anything you kind of want to do with the game, you can. It is so open in that way. Nice. But yes, you can change it and keep your English um, you know, text on screen and listen to the Japanese voices. Japanese voices are great. You know, These are good professional seiyu, and mm-hmm. they're really, really good voice actors, really good performances, very vibrant characters. They're types, but they're types done really well. You know, I don't necessarily play this kind of game in this to scratch the same itch like Persona does where I want yeah. really deep and new and fresh storytelling and characters. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like comfort food in a way, but it's done so well on that story side. And I think the story moves at a fairly decent pace so far. Uh, and even when it's not, you're doing kind of interesting things. So then, in terms of why it is so... There's, it's like there's so much to talk about with this mm-hmm. game, and I'm not going to go into all of it. But like in terms of its content richness... The fundamental things are just the battle system and the job system. The battle system is a really, really nice rethinking of the classic turn-based JRPG combat. It's got that brave default mechanic. Brave is where you can take up to four extra moves in a turn, but then you have to wait four turns before acting again. Default is like your defend, but while defending, you uh, stock up battle points, which are basically brave points. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the core to it. You also have tied in with the jobs. You have multiple ability sets and things like that. You have special moves, which the special moves are fully customizable, and it's it's crazy all this stuff that you can do. Um, and it sounds kind of simple and hokey until you actually start playing it. And I'm not even into the part of the game I think yet where it becomes a super deep mechanic, but it's getting there. It's getting much deeper. Mm-hmm. You really have to employ strategy. Like you don't just take all four characters, make them take tanks, and have them just brave all the time. Yeah. Um, you really need to kind of mix it up, mix and match. There are two characters I have who are basically tanks who just brave all the time. Um, but then it's, it's in terms of like party balance becomes really important. And then the job system, this is the best job system I've ever seen in an RPG like this, and I really like a good job system. It's similar to you know Final Fantasy 3 or 5 where you pick your job and there's a, you unlock more as the game goes along. The thing in old school RPGs that uses a job system, and this is just something you see in lots of games. Like, you see this in Pokemon, too. Pokemon yeah. is like a job system. Where whatever you start with, you are not really incentivized to ever change that, even when you get new jobs, yeah. because it's going to take so long to get yeah, them back to that point. Then you're just going to have to grind out the new yeah. job to get it up to the level where it's usable. And in a couple of ways, Bravely Default is really well balanced. In part, you start with, it takes so little to get those job um, levels up at the beginning when you pick a new job that once you're 10 hours in, you can level that in like four battles and you're up to a decent level with that job. You have Mm -hmm. the stuff you need to make that job usable. But also, your job system, so you have your own job ability set. Each job has a unique ability set that levels the more you go with that. And you have to play that job and level it to get those higher abilities. Mm -hmm. But you can have a secondary ability set and you can pick it from any job you already have. So I can be a black mage, be leveling my black mage, but I can also give him the white mage ability set so that he can cure in a pinch. So it's almost like he was a red mage. Almost like, yeah. Apparently red mage is a job later on. I don't know what the fuck the point of red mage in this game is because maybe red mage is different. Like they have, when you get to, for instance... um, They they get to wear red hats. Yeah. That's really cool. It is. But when you get to like summoner and stuff, um, they are different than traditional summoner classes. It's it's just a different kind of thing they're going for here in some of those. So I could understand if red mage is different than that. Mm -hmm. But in any case, yeah. So you can kind of make your black mage like that. But you can customize it more. You also have support abilities. And as you unlock support abilities, you can put those into like your tertiary ability set, which has, uh, as you level up, a set number of support abilities you can put in there. You unlock more. So for instance, if you've played um, two types of jobs over the course of the game and you've leveled them up fairly high, you'll have 
have multiple supportabilities for both. And in that tertiary set, you can assign uh, mix and match however you want. Nice. So it's a really deep system, mm-hmm. and, and you're really incentivized to change things up. So like I've already on... I think I have two characters who have at least gone through two jobs, and the other two I've kind of kept the same for a while. But you know, I every time I've gotten a new set of jobs, I've made at least one change so far, and I think that'll continue. It's really you're definitely incentivized to change jobs. You can do it. It's fun. It's kind of like when I talked about Pokemon um, X and Y, where the first Pokemon games where they balanced it in such a way that you really can switch new Pokemon in there if you want, and mm-hmm. that made them so much better because you yeah. didn't just use your starter the entire game. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of idea here. So that's really deep. And then there's all this kind of side stuff with it. So there's these sort of um, kind of side games and things you have going on. So one of the story points is that one of the main characters' um, towns where he comes from, he's like this country bumpkin, he comes from this town, and the town is swallowed up by this crater that comes in when the wind crystal dies. And, uh, his As whole t- happens when your wind crystal dies. Yes, his whole town is destroyed. He's really sad. Um, but you can sort of, you. it's a side minigame is rebuilding his town, and you go to it from the touch screen. You can go to it at any time, pretty much, except when you're in a battle or a cutscene. And you basically you open up shops. You find new places in the town to go to, and kind of where new shops are. And you have to clear out rubble and stuff. And how you do that is, it's almost like, and this comparison is going to sound like it's a bad yeah. comparison at first, but it's almost like an Assassin's Creed Four, where you have that ship mini game mm-hmm. you play. This is better though for a couple reasons. One, you don't have to go, you know, walk into your ship and into your captain's quarters yeah. to get to it. And um, but it's like it's like time based. It's all real time. Yeah, it's like very like a mobile game or Facebook game kind of thing, where it's, it's like you commit an action, but then it takes like a certain amount of time to do yeah. the action. It's like that kind of thing. Only I think it's executed better in part just because you have a touch screen. You can go right to it. It's very easy to control instead of kind of trying to put that on the console controls or something. Yeah. So that's nice. But it also is implemented with the game's friend system, internet system, and street pass system, which is really developed. So um, anyone you street pass with, which is the 3DS thing where if your 3DS gets close to another person's 3DS, it exchanges data. Yeah. Anyone you street pass with who's playing Bravely Default, which surprisingly I've gotten a lot of street passes on campus mm-hmm. recently with that. So people are playing the game. Um, anyone you street pass with, that's another person in your town. And anyone, you you can do this also if you don't street pass with people, um, and you can street pass with people and do this, but they put this in there in case you don't have anyone to street pass with. You can go online every day and send net friend invites. It does it all automatically, and you get basically over the internet street passes. They come into your town, so you're always adding more people, and the more people you have, so like each, each, like let's say you want to build your armor shop up, and you build your armor shop up, and it says it's going to take like 20 hours to do your armor shop. Um, and so you want to initiate that move. Well, every person you add will have the time it takes. So the more people you have, the faster you can do this. I've got pretty much everything unlocked in the town at this point. So, and I've got a lot of people, but they all take a lot of hours. So sort of like at the beginning of every day, I'll just go into that game, kind of plan things out where I want people working, and then they'll work all day yeah. while the game's in sleep mode. And there's a lot of... St- and then I should say, how this all plays back into the game is that everything you unlock there, there's this kind of like mysterious traitor figure who appears in the middle of dungeons and stuff, and he will allow you to save your game. He'll also allow you to buy items and equipment, and everything he allows you to buy is what you've built up in Norende, in the town. So, so he's just constantly going to that town, buying the shit you made in these like your fancy new shops, and then he goes and finds you in some random shithole in the ground and sells and, it to you? And hawks it off on you? Even yeah. though it's the your town that you're building up, 
you still have to buy the shit through a you middleman from him. You do get gifts from the town, okay. also. Um, but like, oh well, that's great. That's just great that this town that you are going through the trouble of building up happens to give the four people trying to save the entire fucking planet a couple of goddamn gifts. That's great. It doesn't <laughs> help that I have to spend twenty thousand gil on a fucking battle axe. I've already got some of the higher ones unlocked, but I can't buy them yet. Nearly, there's like a ninety-nine thousand dollar one. Yeah, and I'm not. You know, at most, I think I've ever had like fifteen thousand of whatever. The, I think it's called. PG, I don't know what that currency is. I don't know why they didn't just call it Gil. Yeah. Everything else in the game is the Final Fantasy term. You've mm-hmm. got Echo Herbs, you got your Phoenix down, all of that. Just straight up. Yeah, yes. that's. You've got Blind Silence, you know, Fyra, um, Blizzara, those oh, they, they do the, the like, yeah. Fire, Fyra, the Fyraga yeah. bullshit. Although that's also a little better balanced, too, because I don't think you go through them as fast, and when you do, the power jumps are big. Like, when you get to those, you're like, I desperately need higher level magic at this yeah. point. You get it, it's, and then you start working with it. Everything's just well balanced that way. It's also it's just a game that really, it's just it's thought of everything you kind of want, every frustration you've had with the JRPG, in some way from just sort of how the game is set up. They've kind of fixed in some way or another. So you're, this is not a game where you are going to be two hours into a dungeon, lose, and have to do those two hours again. Hmm. There's an auto save function. It nice. auto saves every floor you go on in a dungeon. It auto saves when you enter or exit a dungeon. When you enter a town, exit a town, enter a shop. Well, you don't enter shops in this game, but that kind of yeah, thing. You just make your own, and then you have to buy them. No, the there are shops in the inns and stuff, and they have unique items. Like, the stuff in Norende is different. It's often better, so you're incentivized to play that side of the game. But sometimes I do have to get stuff just from the shops in the towns. But those are just fun because you don't actually have to go into the shops. You just open the door... Yeah, and then, shout out your yeah. order to the dude making swords. And yeah. Like, hey, I need a plus five cobalt sword. And he's like, you're right. Okay. And throws yep. it at you. And he'll hope you catch it because if you don't, you're fucked. Yeah. And then you throw the money at him. Yeah. Yes. So anyway. Here's your PGs, bitch. <laughs> yep. I don't know what. It's parental guidance units. <laughs> I don't know what Pug is. So. It's just Pugs. Pugs? Yeah. It's Pugs. It's Pugs, the dog. Like, you throw Pugs at people. The characters are living the pug life. Exactly. Yes, anyway. So, there's just a lot of cool stuff like that. There is, as you've probably heard of, the random battle uh, encounter slider yeah. in the in the tactics menu. It's not something I've used a great deal yet, but it's really nice and freeing to know it's there. Because sometimes if I'm just wanting to grind and level up, which is fun because there's also, you can, there's auto battle and you can set different speeds for your battle in the battle with the D-pad. So, I mean, you can do whatever you want. But then with the, again, so sometimes I set the random battle encounter slider all the way up so that I don't just have to run in circles until they come. Yeah. It's a lot faster. And sometimes I'll turn it off if it's like, okay, I have to run back out of this dungeon. Mm-hmm. I don't have a teleport stone. I forgot to get one. And I really don't need to grind at this point. Yeah. So just turn it off. Or if I'm exploring, because one of the things I like about the dungeons is that they're kind of Persona-esque, where each floor is kind of like a maze. Mm. And there's the, the, the map unfurls kind of on the bottom yeah. screen. And you kind of have to go and find everything. And I play it the same way I do Persona, where I go to every edge and yeah. find everything before I move on. So that's kind of nice. Sometimes if, I, if there's a puzzle specifically in a dungeon I'm exploring, I'll turn the random encounters off. Just be like, turn that off. Now I focus on this. Okay, now I can go back to battling. But I've had no battle fatigue in the game whatsoever so far. The battles are really fun. It's got that same kind of thing, I think, in old school Final Fantasies where... Especially when you're going through a dungeon, maybe not every single battle you are strategizing on, but like each floor of a dungeon, you have to come up near the beginning of, okay, how is everyone going to act? And then I kind of set it to auto battle for the duration of that floor. But there is a a strategy there, even if you're not hands-on every battle. Yeah. So that's nice. I think, again, the Brave default system is great. Um, 
so far the bosses are good. They're they're fairly long and, and involved, although I'm kind of over-leveled at this point. But what I might do is, because I can just do this on the fly, is I might just set the difficulty up to hard. Huh. Because I have it on normal now, and I think it might be a little too easy for me. So I might just set that up to hard at some point soon, because I am definitely over-leveled. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you level constantly. It's not, you know, I'm at level 25, it will take two hours of grinding to get to level 26. Nothing yeah. like that. You level, and the levels are significant jumps. Um, if you If there's something that's tough, I think you can go... Grind for an hour, get a level or two up, and and that'll make a difference. Mm-hmm. So it's really good. I, there's just so much. It's so content rich. There's always new things to do. Like one of the things I'm excited to f- sit down and just play with someday is you have one of your characters ring a bell. Um, he has this, and he's the ladies man, like smooth talking ladies man. He's a good character. His name is lame, yeah. but you know that happens in like, Final Fantasy games. Is is his is that like? Like his first name is Ring a Bell, or is that his whole name? Is like his first name Ring, his middle name initial A, and then Bell is last name. His name is just Ring a Bell, one word. I don't know if there's a last name, first name, oh. or anything here. So it's just Ring a Bell. Everyone else has like, maybe he does have a last or first name. I don't remember. That was introduced like an hour one, yeah. And and I've only seen it on you know the status screen as Ring a Bell since then. But no, what was I talking about? Okay, so this, he has a journal. Like his whole backstory is that he has no memory. He's you know that archetype. Yeah, so he that's ring ring a bell. Like yeah. you hope at some point you find something that for him rings a bell. Yes. So he remembers yeah. all the bullshit. Yeah. So he remembers nothing, but he has this journal which um, has all these stories, and sometimes they kind of um, predict future events in the story of the game. And they'll look to it for kind of guidance. It's not like one-to-one, this is what we did. It's, yeah. it's not kind of stupid in that way. It's, it's kind of these obscure kind of references. But the whole journal, is you can go to the journal. It's where your bestiary is, your encyclopedia, your item guide, anything you encounter. Mm-hmm. It'll have a full entry on any job, anything you can go read up on it, any, any cutscene, any dialogue you have, you can go replay from there. It's everything you want to do, you can do in that journal. And it's got all this reading to do. It's kind of like the Mass Effect, um, what's it the called? Codex. Codex. Yeah. It's very... Very much like the Codex, and I'm really excited, as with the Codex, to just kind of find some time and just sit down and read this thing. Hmm. Because there's a lot in there, especially just the story stuff. I want to read that. And to find out what, like, the how naming works in this universe, whether or not yes. people have first names and last names, and <laughs> where does the name Ring a Bell come from? Yes. So hopefully that's in there somewhere, but man, it's just, there's a lot, a lot to do in this game, and I really love it. It is a great, great JRPG. I think it kind of... It restores some of my faith in the non-Persona side of this genre. Because I, you know, because I love Persona does not necessarily mean I'm a huge JRPG fan. It's yeah. just, it's a different thing for me. I kind of categorize it differently. It's kind of genre-less to me. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, JRPG games I love, and I love kind of the older Final Fantasy games. Sometimes there have been new ones that have been interesting. Um, but then I think there's a lot of ones that just fall into weird pratfalls. Like, I've tried to play Nino Kuni several times, and it's just, I'm like three hours in and it's still so slow. Just nothing is fucking happening in that game. The, the Sort of the game, whatever the, the gameplay mechanics are in it still have not showed their full hand. So I just don't know if I'm ever going to play that full game, even though it's, it's gorgeous. Bravely Default doesn't have that problem. There's a lot to learn and it is a, you, have, you do have to play, you know, two, three hours before everything is there for you. Um... But it's so it's entertaining that whole way, and and every piece you get is is interesting. And once it's all together and, and is building on one another, it's it's really compelling. So, man, it is. Anyone thinking of buying a 3DS? If you like this kind of genre, it's worth owning the system for. It's also a game that kind of sells me on certain features of the system. Like this is the first game I've played that really makes Street Pass seem cool and useful. Um, 
and there's some other features. It, it like the graphics use the 3D is used fantastically in this game. When you turn it to 2D, it definitely feels like it's losing something. I don't always play it in 3D. Maybe half and half I do, um, because I just I can't see the 3D on the 3DS all that well unless I'm in certain scenarios. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it ghosts for me really heavily. But I mean, they use it expertly. It's it's the graphics were obviously made with that stereoscopic 3D in mind. So they're using every part of the system, and that's really cool. But not in like a super gimmicky way ever either. Yeah. I don't think so. Really, really good game. Cool. And it was on sale last week, and might still be on Amazon for 32 bucks. And since 3DS games almost never go on sale, you mm-hmm. might want to jump on that if they still have it for that price. So anyway. Um, and definitely remember, if you have a Nintendo system, buy your games physically. Because if you don't, they are tied to the console. And if anything happens to your console, you never get to play them again. Yeah, especially with a portable system. That yes. seems like an important thing to keep in mind. Which sucks because I would love to just buy everything digitally on a portable yeah. system. I don't buy shit physically on my Vita. Yeah, but that's I have my that Persona 4, the golden card that I put in there, is still in there. Yep. It's, it's not been removed. And I, and, I, and I know if anything ever happens to my Vita, here's how I get my games back. I buy a new yeah. Vita, I sign in, they're there. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> so, Nintendo needs to get with the times on that, but in any case. I will say with Nintendo, I, I saw some previews. Uh, all the, the websites put up their, all the gaming websites put up their previews for Mario Kart 8. They all got yeah. to play it, and it sounds really cool. Like, the graphics are apparently really good. It's running at locked 60 frames per second, even in split screen. That's amazing. Oh, that's impressive. Because Mario Kart Wii was 45 frames a second, but in split screen it went down to like 24 or less. Hmm. And then if you play like Halo 4 online on split screen, <laughs> it goes to like 2 frames a second yes. if you're playing on a Forge map. Yes, yeah, so I don't know if it'll have online split screen. Uh, that might be different, but yeah. Hmm. Uh, anyway, this sounds cool. I'm Mario Kart 8 sounds like it'll be cool. Because I did not like 7, and 8 sounds like it's fixed some of those problems. Like for instance, your carts move fast again. No, that's yeah. That seems that seems like a good addition. Like Mario Kart Seven feels like geriatric Mario Kart. You are moving like, yeah. Uh, you just feel like you're always moving at half speed. Like, did I hit? Like you're you're driving a go kart instead of an actual car. Yes. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, anyway, any other stuff to talk about? Like little news things. Um, oh, there's one that just like this just came out earlier today of Amy Hennig, who I think we talked about this on the podcast when she left. She was the, sort of like the lead writer and project lead for most of the Uncharted games. And she left uh, Naughty Dog like a month ago now. And it just came out today that she went to... And she used to work for EA. So she's gone back to EA working at the studio called Visceral that is now working on a game in the Star Wars license after EA acquired the Star Wars license. So, you know, like there's, we don't know like what the game is or anything. But I think that's just the idea of Amy Hennig and like her writing style and stuff. Like her bringing like her talent to the uh, Star Wars game sounds like a totally perfect fucking fit. Like, well, I'm super excited for that, because she's... Like, the way she writes is perfect for that kind of universe. Well, exactly, because if Uncharted are like Indiana Jones the yeah. game, Indiana Jones and Star Wars are brothers. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it should work. So, yeah, and that's nice to hear that they've got good people working on this after LucasArts uh, went under. Yeah, yeah. Or was shut down. Yeah. Yeah. After Disney did their dirty deed. Yeah. Disney, Disney, Disney got Star Wars and then took everything Star Wars fans loved and, and like, held its head in the toilet yeah. until it drowned. So you want another season of Star Wars The Clone Wars Fuck you <laughs> Yeah So anyway Yes that's nice And the other piece of news Which is relevant for us On this podcast Persona 4 Has been rated by the ESRB For the Playstation 3 
probably means it's coming out as a PS2 classic, yeah. like Persona 3 Fest did. Yeah. Um, I doubt they're porting the gold into the PS3. That would no, be a lot of work. Be crazy. Yeah. That'd be nonsense. Um, but anyway, I think that's cool. I like that yeah. the original version of PlayStation or, or of Persona 4 is being archived that way. Yeah. Um, and we've got you know Golden over on the Vita. I will. You can now you know get have an easy way to play the game on a modern, well, relatively modern system and get the original fucking Chie, the real Chie. That's what I'm concerned. <laughs> But in any case, and, and you should clarify for people who haven't heard our other ones. You don't dislike the new Chia. No, she's she's <laughs> probably a legitimately a better voice actor. But I like I like I like old Chia. Well, and I'm like when to... I think about Chia, I still think of her in that voice, even though I've actually heard the new Chia voice more than I've heard the old Chia voice. That's funny. But no, I, I'm you know I will definitely get Persona Four as a PS2 classic if it comes out. I will never play the whole game that way because the golden is a better version yeah. it's, I like you know playing it it's it's improved but I would like to have it for archival purposes see some of the differences yeah. and I think it's funny people noted in these stories it's like so now you know it'll be it'll make sense you'll have you know 3, 4 and then 5 when they all come out on the PS3 I keep forgetting 5 is coming out on the yeah. PS3 I gotta keep this PS3 around for a significant amount of time just so I can play my Persona games yeah. <laughs> that's like the one thing holding me from going I mean, full on next yeah, gen yeah I mean, it doesn't necessarily wholly fix the problem, but it will probably... They haven't actually announced it, but it'll probably be on the 362, so... Oh, Persona 5? Yeah, probably. Oh, okay. Like, like, Persona 4 Arena 2, or Persona 4, the Ultimate... The Ultimax Ultimate Ultra Suplex Hold. Yeah. I haven't said the title in a while. That That's one I think is totally confirmed is coming out of the 360, so... I don't I don't play these games on the 360, yeah. so... Yeah. But I'm just saying, but if that was... Because that's probably what, how I'll end up playing them, so... Oh, okay. So if it was more convenient for you to keep the 360 out... No, I'm probably away. about to put my 360 away, in fact. I'm yeah. probably done with it. Um, because I just... I like playing games on my PS3 more. My PS3 is in better condition. And the 360 takes up a lot more space. And I just don't... There's nothing coming out for it anymore that I play on it. I've got a lot more games at this point on my PS3. And, you know... But you do have to use the DualShock 3 on the PS3. Which I, I find with me. Or I could plug in the DualShock 4. Yeah. You know, whatever. Um, in any case... DualShock I, 3 man it's no that's no way to play on neither that's, of them do no I way to live on neither of them do I have to use the Wii U gamepad so I don't know dude that's I like the, the DualShock 3 DualShock just fine 3 is a pretty hefty piece of shit I like it just fine but well, you're a bad person it's, okay. it's got nothing on the DualShock 4 I like it it's it fine. is a bad controller it okay. is straight up a bad controller okay. it is a bad way to play video games people should not play video games with it like sometimes you have no choice like I went through it there were games that's like I had no choice but to play PS3 games with the fucking DualShock 3 but goddamn it that is a shitty fucking controller alright we've had this debate too many times let's move on topic right. time Sean okay so, what are we talking about today? We're talking about Marvel movies. All right. So we're going to talk about some Marvel one-shots in specific. But I want to kind of set the stage for our Captain America 2 discussion yeah. so we don't have to take the time to do it next week. Sure. Um, because we've definitely talked around kind of our thoughts on Marvel movies before. We, we talk about Iron Man 3, Thor 2, and we talk about some of this news. But we've mentioned a lot on here uh, how much we, we love the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, how much we like their philosophy with it. But I think yeah. we should go into depth with that and explain what we mean by that why these films resonate with us. Go back to you know Iron Man in 2008. What was that like? How do we look at it now versus then? Uh, and where would you start with this, Sean? I mean, you're, I would say where I would start with this is sure. that I think, you know, in the annals of superhero films so far, this is my favorite set of superhero movies. Yes. This is what Marvel's done. Yes. There are other stray superhero films, you know, Spider-Man 2, yes. um, the Chris Nolan Batman movies, which aren't really superhero films. The original Some, Superman. Yeah. Far the ending. 
Yeah, bar the ending. So here and there, there are ones I like. Uh, X2, I can still enjoy on some levels, yeah. even though I think it's aged poorly. Um, but definitely this set, in terms of consistency and tone and everything, I love these, and they were different than anything that had come before. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of your opinion on these two? Yeah, yeah. Like, they feel like... I mean, other than, like, Spider-Man 2 is so fucking good, but, like, the Marvel movies, like, so consistently have the perfect comic book movie style that it's, like... You know, it's it's one of my like sort of the the issues I have with the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Even though they're very very good, they don't feel like comic book movies to me at all. They feel like crime thrillers, basically, with the dude who dresses up as a bat and who has a butler who speaks only in speeches. But, yes. Yeah. That so you have to separate. It's like it's a weird thing yeah. where I love Batman and I love the Chris Nolan Batman movies, but they're two different things for me. Yeah. I don't think of the, that Kevin Conroy Batman as the same thing as you know Christian yeah. Bale or anything. Yeah. It's, just, it's funny how it's just like because I had this conversation with some people like not that long ago about like we got in an argument where I was just like saying they're really good movies, but I think they're they have a really bad Batman. I don't like Christian Bale's Batman like straight up. No, it's not a good version of the character. I don't think it's an interesting version of the character. I do not like their version of Batman at all. Luckily, he's not that important to any of the movies that are not Batman Begins. Like, Dark Knight is... It's... Whatever. He's not a great Batman. Fine. Dark Knight Rises, he's not a great Batman. Fine. It's That doesn't ruin the movies, but... And, it's, and I don't have that problem with them yeah. it's not, And it's not even that I have a problem with them They're just a different thing It's a different yeah. philosophy And I think Christopher Nolan makes them work And I think Batman is a character where you can You can take Batman from yeah. point A to B And that makes sense mm-hmm. from, from you know animated series, comic books, Frank Miller All of that yeah, to from fighting aliens in the 60s To fighting a dude who is always high on painkillers Yes So anyway, I see that I think with most other you know comic book movies And we've seen this kind of There was... I think, and even after the Marvel movies came out, there was this kind of uh, matriculation of that Christopher Nolan style into other superhero films and other studios and yeah, whatnot. Like, what was that? Right, Man of Steel, which was basically like if you stripped out the superpowers of Batman movie or the Batman Begins movie. Well, it's in the, it's in the exact yeah. same style. No one would argue that, whether they like it or not. And and I, you know, but for the most part, I think these heroes don't work in that way. I don't think you can do the dark, gritty Thor. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I don't think you can do Thor like getting a drug addiction or something, yeah. and like you know, Thor has a but like if Anthony Hopkins was giving Thor big long speeches yeah. about you cannot go to Earth, you cannot be a hero. It kind of like do the thing with the Christopher Nolan movies where he did never like pick any of the super powered Batman villains. It's yeah. like Thor's just fighting regular dudes all the time. Thor versus the Riddler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like you couldn't do that. You couldn't do it with Iron Man. Like all the characters they've adapted. I not coincidentally, you could not do that with them yeah. and make it work, you know. And so, and I think, I think people forget how different Iron Man was when it came oh, out yeah. in two thousand eight. Yeah. There had been nothing like it. Maybe Sam Raimi Spider Man, but even Maybe then, even then yeah. those are heavier. Those have to just because of the time they came out. This was not something Sam Raimi could control. They could not wear their comic book influences on their sleeves quite as much. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't at that time. And they were years ahead of their time. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at the, those first two Spider-Man movies, and even though I think that first one has some problems, um, there are still things that I think other non-Marvel comic book movies are catching up with. Yeah. X-Men has never gotten to that point, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, so, no, Iron the Man was... The day Wolverine wears his fucking costume is the day they'll be there with the X-Men movies. It's like, you're there. Yes. You've figured it out. You've figured out the right attitude. It's never going to happen. It's like, one day... Yeah. One day... 
someday there will be an X-Men movie that has Wolverine in his costume. It won't be Hugh Jackman. I will probably not be alive when it happens. <laughs> there will probably not even be movies. There will be like fifth dimensional like light displays. I don't know what the fuck we'll be watching then. Like a planetarium show? Yeah, like one... I mean, you're not even going to watch it with your eyeballs. It's just going to be chemical impulses injected directly into your fucking brain by an ocular implant. So it's like light is going to be goldy. Probably not even going to be physical creatures when it happens. We'll just be energy thought beings at that point. But someday there will be a, a live-action representation of Wolverine actually wearing his costume. I have a funny story about Wolverine. Sure. Kind of. Okay. The other day, I was, you know, getting ready for the day, and I was doing my hair, and I was using... I don't use, like, you know, gel product or you anything. Use, you don't put product in your hair? The only product I put in my hair is sometimes when I need to look nice if I'm teaching a class or something, is I use a leave-in conditioner. It just... It just keeps your hair from going all over the place. Mm-hmm. And when you live in a windy area like Colorado, that can be helpful. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I put the thing in, kind of was looking down. I looked back up in the mirror, and my hair had just surreptitiously gone into the Wolverine yeah, pose. Yeah, two spikes on the side. Uh, exactly. Like, it was uncanny. Like, I did a double take of my own reflection, and I was like... Looking, hey, bub. Yep. I thought about leaving it. I'm but the then best I, there is at what I do. I should have left it in. comb my hair. I thought about leaving it in... But I would have had to go buy a cigar for that to pull it <laughs> He's off fully. Just, like walk into class with like a beer and a cigar. <laughs> See if anyone got it. No, but anyway, back to Iron Man. Why this was different? I mean, you know, when Iron Man came out, and it was the first comic book movie that a fully felt comic booky in tone. It was yeah. fun. It was unabashedly fun. It wasn't afraid to be fun. And yet it was also within that it had character depth, it had character resonance, it had good drama, it had it had problems in the action and villain department, and those have become more apparent over time. Yeah. But those weren't so big in the moment. It just again it was it was fun, it was comic booky, and that didn't preclude depth or quality, and I think that was the breakthrough. Yeah. And it, and the huge part of it is the I mean, it's so interesting picking Iron Man because Iron Man then like he is of the Marvel characters, like he is certainly in the top tier, but he's not in the top tier in the sense that it's like he, it's like, is part of the public consciousness in the way that Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Spider Man all are. Right. Like, kind of a little bit Captain America then. You can't just put Iron Man on a poster and know people will come to see yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Like, nobody knew who, like, like I, what, nobody knew who Tony Stark was. You know, nobody knew Iron Man's origin story. Nobody, like, people maybe heard the name, could maybe recognize a picture of Iron Man as Iron Man, but maybe. And then, but then picking Iron Man, part of the thing is that Tony Stark is such a great comic booky character because he's so he's such a great Marvel character in the sense of that he's really funny, he's really witty, he's has, has that side to him, but he's also he has the sort of you know he's an alcoholic, he's very like egotistic and very arrogant, and he hurts people a lot because of that. So he feels like a very dynamic, real human being, but he's also a lot of fun to be with. And so when you have Robert Downey Jr. playing him and playing him fucking perfectly. It makes, like, you know, sort of the standout moment to me of Iron Man is at the very end when he's at the press conference and he just says, I'm Iron Man. And it's just like, because fuck it. Fuck it. He's Iron Man. That's what Tony Stark would fucking do. He doesn't give a shit. He's Iron Man. And you can just, I'm Iron Man. You know? And that was such a big breakthrough moment because if you remember superhero movies up to that point, what was the archetype? It was these yeah. had to be about uh, about secret identities and they had to be heavily yeah, they about... they always just got hung up on, like, origin... And like on super secret identity and like on the superhero cliche stuff that's like is in the comic books, but it's like 
That's not. That's all. That's in the comic books. Is there's so much more. There's so much just more content in the comics. That's like they don't get hung up on that forever. Where the movies, this like you only have a two-hour movie. You always get the fucking hung up on that shit. And I think what's so important about that moment at the end of Iron Man is that's Marvel saying, "We're not going to do this." Yeah. And it turned out they've never done that. Yeah. Secret identities haven't been a problem. Dual identities really haven't been a thing outside of Iron Man. Yeah, and because of the, like, the heroes they picked most. Right. Yeah. And so it's just they were different than anything we've seen, but that's not to say they were sort of going against the comics or anything. Yeah. They were just things in comics that had not been adapted up to this time because we hadn't kind of broken out of this very specific mold. Yeah. Kind of basically the 1978 Richard Donner Superman, 1991 Batman Tim yeah. Burton mold. Which are kind of the two big, and then I guess X Men 2000, Brian Singer, yeah. the kind of foundational superhero movies. Yeah. So that's interesting to me. And I think, you know, Marvel had kind of a rough start after that point. Iron Man was great, yeah. big hit, people loved it. The Incredible Hulk, now kind of the dark sheep, dark sheep of, the, yeah. of the franchise, it's an okay movie. Yeah. Um, definitely after Avengers, it's almost impossible to go back to it and enjoy it, I think, at this point, because yeah. it's like. They did it so much better the next time out. Yeah. And this movie is not... I don't know continuity-wise how it plays into anything anymore because... Oh, right, yeah. It's yeah. like... Cause not, and it's not just because they recast Edward Norton with yeah. Mark Ruffalo. They also heavily changed the Hulk's design. And Joss Whedon went back to a more traditional interpretation of the Hulk where in the Incredible Hulk movie, Edward Norton's uh, Bruce Banner, anytime his heart rate gets up, he turns into the Hulk. Yeah. It's not about getting angry, it's just adrenaline. Yeah. And they went back to it's an anger-based thing mm-hmm. in the Avengers. So I don't know what the Yeah, and, Hulk... the, and then, like, critically in the Avengers, and one of the things that I think makes the Hulk character work is that the Hulk is... Like, the Hulk's not smart, but he's intelligent in the sense that it's like, you know, a dolphin is reasonably intelligent. That it's like, it is a, he's a reasoning creature. The Hulk can talk. He, can, he has feelings. He does stuff. He's not just... You know, it, it's like, I get the, the thing. Because it's like the Angley Hulk did it. The Incredible Hulk did it. The movie of just, like, having the Hulk be this physical representation of your main character's, like, inner turmoil and rage. I understand that. I understand that that's your sort of, like, artistic direction you want to go, is to make him purely metaphorical and symbolic. But unfortunately, that makes him so not interesting in any way. It's like, the, the great thing about the Hulk is that he is his own character, and he's a really fun, awesome character, as evidence in the Avengers, when he jumps in and, like, picks up Loki and smashes him to the ground and says beauty god like that's fucking great that's what i want i don't want the hulk just going around going all the time and just shouting and then you get like one time at the end you can kind of tell that he said smash that's it you know no fuck that the hulk is a fucking character too right he's not just a metaphor yeah if you were writing an essay on the hulk and you want to talk about the ego id thing yeah sure that's fine but in a movie it's not if he's just pure id who, who gives a fuck? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's and, not interesting. And Ang Lee's Hulk is the ultimate example of who gives a fuck because yeah. I, I, some people have like deified the Ang Lee Hulk movie at this point and mm. said because like unlike the Marvel Studios movies now, it actually went for something deep and that was important. And it's like ambition does not equate with quality, people. Yeah. I, I respect, I honestly do respect the ambition of the Ang Lee Hulk movie. The execution was wretched. Across the board, wretched. Yeah. So that does not one does not you know rectify the other. So anyway, yeah. Incredible Hulk, kind of a black sheep. I don't I, I don't even fully know what to do with it. Like, what do we do with this movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe canon at this point? I just kind of ignore it mostly. I think yeah. it's just like whatever. Yeah, it's a very easy movie to ignore. Luckily, like it's like it's not a bad movie. It's just not 
is not that interesting. No, and I do it's worth a watch. I guess, and I will say, I liked Edward Norton as Bruce Banner yeah, an awful lot. Good. I think it it's it's similar to all their casting. It's a very good piece of casting, and I would have been interested to see where he would have gone with it. Mark Ruffalo did it better. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But he yeah. also had Joss Whedon, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I, everything was better. With yeah. That, so yeah, Mark. Mark I mean, Edward Norton did kind of get the shorthand in this. Yeah. So. Anyway, in any case, uh, so that was kind of a misstep in some sense. Although I, th- I think the other thing people forget is that Incredible Hulk came out like four weeks after Iron Man. Yeah. It was this really short gap. You never even saw it in theaters. No, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. So it was like people kind of overlooked it, but it was also like Iron Man was so big. It didn't. No one came off the kind of high of Iron Man because of Incredible Hulk. Yeah. It was just kind of it was there. Did okay. Well, let's move on. Yeah. And next thing we got was a couple years later we got Iron Man two. And, you know, this movie's still very divisive. It's, like with all superhero movies that are mildly disappointing, people eventually yeah. conflate it to be like Batman and Robin. It's nothing like Batman yeah. and Robin. Shut the fuck up. You've clearly never seen Batman and Robin. Yeah. Um, Iron Man 2, I think it's a good movie. It's yeah, fine. I agree. It's, it's not great. However, I also think, and I don't think it gets enough credit for this, and maybe this is like that kind of ambition execution split, I think it is structurally very interesting mm-hmm. in that it is this superhero movie where there is this threat but the threat is not what he immediately appears to be it's not really the, the Mickey Rourke character yeah with Lesh it's more about sort of this the, the Sam Rockwell character who's a great character yeah. Sam Rockwell's awesome and he's kind of this you know megalomaniacal guy who's living in Tony Stark's, Stark's shadow and once more and Tony Stark his problems at this point are so big he can't even be bothered to pay attention to it yeah. And that's interesting to me. And so most of the movie is Tony Stark doing his own thing, the villain doing his own thing, and they finally clash at the end. The execution is not perfect. The clash at the end is really slight and feels yeah. slight. But other than that, I think as a character piece and exploring some of the issues it explores, I actually do like that structure. I think it's yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, and they have some good stuff between Tony and Brody, you know, that like that dynamic is well explored. And then also it, it, it's you know since this is when I think Marvel really sort of like was trying to put the whole like Avengers stuff in motion they injected a lot of stuff into the movie that I that I appreciated even if it kind of ended up making the pacing of the movie feel kind of weird yeah this is the that, biggest problem yeah that's like it deals a lot with like this kind of setting up Avengers stuff and it has like you know Captain America shield is in there Nick Fury Samuel Jackson like plays a relatively significant part it introduces Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow who's like my favorite part of that movie mm-hmm. I think she's, she's got that I remember yeah. seeing for the first time her big kick-ass scene in the climax and it was like that got the loudest applause yeah. that got the biggest reaction people love that scene it's great yeah, and it's just a cool like that part of the movie even at the, at the time like I kind of recognized that put into the structure of the movie it kind of hurts the, the, move, the individual movie as a whole but I think, like, I haven't actually watched it in a very long time, but if I went back and watched it, I think it would probably actually be a lot more interesting in terms of the ways it builds up the rest of the Marvel Universe, the cinematic universe, and how the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe comes from there, really. Just yep. like they suggest it, you know, they have the post-credits thing in Iron Man 1 with, with Nick Fury and the Avengers Initiative or whatever, but that movie doesn't deal, like, doesn't deal with it at all, rightfully so, because it's the first one. This yeah. is the second one that's like... Okay, like we're, we're trying something here. We're going to build a universe and like make reference to stuff and like have other characters that are going to off to do other things in like other movies. Yeah, and and I you know um, Iron Man one and the Incredible Hulk both have those brief post credits tags that yeah. kind of hint at a universe. I think people forget Tony Stark is in the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah because he comes in like because Ross doesn't yeah. like, talk to him. Or Thunderbolt yeah. Ross. 
I know that's not his actual name, yeah. but it's he comes in and uh, no, it is Thunderbolt Ross. Isn't yeah, it? I mean that's his that's okay. his, like yeah nickname. Right. Yeah, no, but his he, real name is just and Tony Ross. comes in and tells him about the Avengers Initiative, which I I have to imagine now the only way to make sense of that is that that's Thunderbolt Ross is drunk and that didn't actually so, yeah. happen because there's no way in the actual canon of these films Tony Stark did that. Yeah, that's just the way he reacts to the Avengers yeah. Initiative, like in the other movies. Yeah, yeah, no, that didn't happen, but. Um, it's so th- those were just our our intro. Like maybe they were going to do something with this, but Iron Man two was like we did those two movies. They did well. People liked Iron Man a lot. Um, we come back two years later for Iron Man two. We're actually going to try this now. Yeah, and that's when they actually tried this. And and so you know I think you know the other thing to say before we move on from Iron Man two is that John Favreau did Iron Man one and two, yeah. and I think he should get a lot of credit for making this work because yeah. if you don't have John Favreau on those two movies, the entire entire sort of Marvel ethos totally. And stylistically and everything That doesn't exist yeah. He gives it that I think he had other failings as a director on these films He didn't really understand how to choreograph or shoot action He didn't really understand pace as well as some of the directors who came after yeah. him would So I'm, I'm not going to say I'm glad he's not doing movies anymore for Marvel If he wanted to come back and do another one someday I'd be happy to see that But for instance I'm glad Their original plan was he would do Avengers I think it's good they got Yeah that they like know. to pass on the torch to like other yes. Artistic voices to try to bring this stuff to light Because each director and writer like Can bring their own sort of skills and strength Strengths to the franchise Where it's like you know John Favreau obviously is really good At building the character stuff And understands the character of Tony Stark very very well but like you said, he doesn't know how to do action. He doesn't know how to set up a very good villain, at least in these movies. And so, and like, so I think both of them. That's by far like the worst part is it's like the action is really insubstantial and unsatisfying, and the villain never feels like the proper like action fighty villain never feels fully developed. No, and it's and again that's the, what you just everything you just said is a perfect segue into the next batch of movies. Two thousand eleven. This was our first year with multiple. Um, well, no, because two thousand eight had it, but this was mm-hmm. our next year with multiple Marvel movies. Thor and Captain America, and that's when these new voices start coming in, and they're so crucial yeah. to these movies. I think Thor is kind of you know Thor was directed by Kenneth Branagh, and I don't I don't think Thor is their best film. I put it down on the lower end of them overall for me, um, and I and I like their Thor interpretation an awful lot. It's got some structural issues. It's it's feels a little slight in parts. Um, but Kenneth Branagh definitely found a way to kind of, and the writers of that movie found a way to kind of crack, how do we do Thor on film? And that was clearly their biggest challenge. Yeah, and how, like, not only do we, how do we do Thor on film, but how do we also do Thor on film in a way that makes it seem like when he pops up in Avengers, it's not just like, what the fuck is going on, you know? It's a very important building block. Yeah. And, I mean, you, I know you like Thor a lot, so yeah, I Yeah, I like talk- Thor quite a bit. And, yeah, like, one... It's also just like with all the other movies too. It just made me realize that Chris Hemsworth Thor is my favorite of the Marvel movie characters. I think they have a really great version of the character. I think Chris Hemsworth is fucking perfect. I mean, this is true of like basically all of their main cast for all of these characters. This is that Chris Hemsworth Thor? He just straight up is Thor. He gets the character. He gets how to play it. He has like the physicality for it. He does a really great weird like whatever high fantasy accent. That, like every high fantasy world has that accent like it's not Norse you know it's not a, appropriate for the character but it's great for the character you know yeah. it's that voice it's like half the characters in Lord of the Rings have that accent so he does that really well and then it's just like there's so much humor to it which is sort of like the the weird thing with Thor is that it's, he is a fucking god like straight up he is 
well, he's an alien, but he's an alien god because it's the whole thing where aliens came to the earth like thousands of years ago, and that's where the Norse like were like, oh my god, they're aliens. It's the plot to every other episode of the original Star Trek of like, yes. we encountered these people, and this alien calls himself Ares. Could perhaps our version of Ares come from this being visiting our planet thousands of years in the past? It's that that yes. fucking thing. So they do that, and they do that, and it makes it feel like. You know, it's funny, it's a light, but it also has what Thor needs, which it has the sort of, like, dramatic, almost kind of overdramatic undertones of, like, you know, his relationship with Loki and how, like, sort of Shakespearean that is in a lot of ways with, like, you know, the battling brothers and the sort of the two different ideologies that they have, sort of the battle for the throne. They get that sort of high fantasy, overdramatic stuff, but, like, the key part that makes it feel like a comic book is one that they balance it with, you know, Thor having to come to, like, contemporary modern world and then also like all the humor you very naturally can extract from that and not break the tone which is a very yeah. delicate balance to, especially in something live action as opposed to a comic book now that first Thor it is it's slight to me it's got a very kind of small scale to it surprisingly for what it is yeah. but I think the sort of basic Shakespearean arc it has for Thor and for Loki is so good the chemistry Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman have is so good mm -hmm. and the humor is so well calibrated it really made something work that by no means should have worked at a certain level. Yeah. It's like, that's one that I can understand not wanting to touch is Thor on film. Because yeah. how do you, especially if you're trying to build it within this larger universe, yeah. that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. But it's one they tackled well. And of course, as good as Chris Hemsworth is, you've also got to talk about Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. Because Thor the franchise does not work without Tom Hiddleston's Loki. Yeah, and really like, Tom Hiddleston's Loki is sort of like the in a weird way like it's him and Robert Downey Jr. are sort of like the cornerstones of the Marvel cinematic franchise it's like Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man is like the most likable charismatic and he's sort of the original hero for this universe and then you have Loki who is still really the only good villain any of these movies have kind of had so it's but he is such a good villain like he is so interesting and he's so like they especially when you move on to the other films with like particularly in Thor 2 the way they develop his character and just the way they play with him being the god of deception and mischief and you never understanding truly what his motives are what he's doing him constantly tricking you as the viewer like they do that so well and he's such a he's such a character that is like you love him and you also love to hate him like you 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 want to see him be beaten but you also are kind of rooting for him in the back of your head yes and that's yeah it's the making of a great villain well and i think thor is a good example of of kind of how um, the Marvel movies and the Marvel Cinematic Universe did open up all these opportunities for actually really legitimately good acting. So yeah. Tom Hiddleston and Chris Hemsworth are so good, and, and Tom Hiddleston in particular, he so many opportunities have opened for him. Everyone loves him. He's in lots of other movies, and he's been really acclaimed, and, and it's it's just shown that he can do kind of anything. Yeah, and, and then really also, cool. the, well, just one of the things I always love is you know how, how fully Tom Hiddleston like has embraced his role as Loki and like the fandom and all that yep. stuff. Where if you watch any footage of him from like Comic Con and stuff, it's really great. Yes. Like most of these actors have all like Robert Downey Jr. also like has some like great stuff like from Comic Con and like yep. fan appearances and stuff that show that they understand the fan base, they understand the character, they understand the appeal, and they just have fun with it. They get that it's all just fun, you know. Yep. It's it's awesome. So that's Thor. That was Kenneth Branagh. I will have one... this one thing I have to say about Thor, which is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, is when Hawkeye comes in. Because for me, that is the first time... And it's still, like I think, the most elegant way for me as a viewer to have seen the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a universe in the way the comic books are. Where it's like, you you know, you have Nick Fury in Scarlet... I have to call her Scarlet Witch. Black Widow. 
in, in Iron Man 2. It's like you have them, and it's like, yeah, they're characters, and you have, you know, Black Widow's introduction there. But what they do with Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner's appearance in Thor, is just Thor is having this big fight at the S.H.I.E.L.D. base in the middle of the movie, and then you just, like, have, like, all these guys grabbing guns off the wall, and then the camera's panning down, and it shows a hand reaching out for a gun, and then, like, goes down and grabs a bow instead. And as soon as I see that as a viewer who's, like, knowledgeable about the Marvel comics and all that stuff, uh, that immediately says to me, holy shit that dude's fucking Hawkeye and they never tip their hand they never sort of like you know have Jeremy Renner turn and wink at the camera and go it's like Hawkeye signing out like never something they do like, which is the thing that you would do to like right. get like everyone else in the theater to just like maybe kind of understand what the cameo and the reference is about and it's like they say no fuck that like it's just it, he is a dude who's working for S.H.I.E.L.D. like he is a kind of like, he's a grunt, but he's, like, a special, like, agent kind of grunt, but he's, you know, he's he would be there. It feels natural that he would be there. He is just there, and it's like, you don't make a huge deal out of it, and to me, that's what's, that's something so special that even none of the other films have quite done that to that level yet, where it feels like something, like, if I'm reading the older Marvel comics, that if I, you know, I'm reading a Daredevil comic, and in the Daredevil comic... Peter Parker is there, but he is just there because he's on assignment from the Daily Bugle, and, like, there's some court case that also Matt Murdock is working on, it's like, he's just there. It's just Peter Parker. He has, like, two lines of dialogue, whatever, and you can, obviously you can get away with that in comic books because you don't have to pay actors, so it's like, you can do that all the time, but being able to do that even just once in one movie, I've never seen anything else do that, and to me, that's something so special that Thor did. There's one other moment like that in Thor 2, with Captain America. Yeah, but it's not as good. It's, it's not, like, it's a cool, funny scene, but it doesn't, it's not the same thing. It's, it's not just the same, like... It's not the same level yeah. at all, but it is the kind of thing where you wouldn't see that in another franchise. Yeah, that's true. Because they wouldn't go to the, the bother of, of paying Chris Evans to come do this for something that, again, in a comic, you just draw that, it's really easy, Loki yeah. turns into Cap. Mm-hmm. But it's much harder in a movie, but they make it feel that same level of effortless. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing there. Yeah. So anyway, that's Thor. Um, my favorite Marvel movie of this whole first Phase 1 cycle, pre-Avengers, was the other film of 2011, which was Captain America, the first Avenger. They got Joe Johnston to do this. Joe Johnston was... You know, he's directed several acclaimed films on his own, like The Rocketeer is his sort of... Uh, masterpiece people love um, but he was an assistant director to Steven Spielberg including on Raiders of the Lost Ark mm-hmm. and he definitely brings that tone so well to Captain America and I Dude, think Captain America the first Avenger the first Avenger please. do I have to say the whole that's, title yes it's that's the title of the fucking movie can I just call it Captain America no, you have to call it Captain America okay. you have to call it Captain America the first Avenger every single time I get just a good way of calling it Captain America okay anyway Captain America the first Avenger thank you um Really, I, this one to me was even more amazing than Thor or Iron Man or any of the other ones, even though probably not as difficult a character to pull off in that sense. Yeah. However, it's a hard character to make relevant and mm-hmm. feel relevant today in a world where, you know, sort of very cynical, patriotism seems kind of fucking stupid, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. How do you make Cap seem cool? And man, this and this was a character I didn't have a huge connection with before, but I will say, sort of, as you recently realized, Chris Hemsworth. Thor was your favorite part of this yeah. universe. Chris Evans, uh, Captain America, same for me. That's I, especially I was watching these uh, both of the Cap movies so far, First Avenger and you know the Avengers mm-hmm. um, this week, and it's just I love that character so much. I think their specific angle on him and the way Chris Evans plays him is so well done because it's a it's a perspective that I don't think you have in any other superhero movie or superhero franchise, which mm-hmm. is this... Even, and back even in his own context, in the first Avenger, when he's 
you know, it's in the 1940s during World War II, where he's just this kid who, he sees, you know, everybody else going to war, and it's not that it's like, rah, rah, America, I have to fight for America, it's that everyone's doing this, this is not one of those wars that's really cynical. We shouldn't yeah, like, be at war. Yeah, this is fucking World War Two. Goddamn it! Yeah. Like I need to go punch. I need to go punch Hitler in the fucking face. Like yes. I have to do this. Yes, this was it's a my moral responsibility. Yeah, and that's one of the only you know that's the last war you can actually say that about exactly. in some way. So, and and it's it's that is his motivation, and he gets the chance to do it, and and he has a specific you know perspective on things where I think he is such a humble superhero yeah. he has such humility to him he is a soldier he's trained in that way um, and it's just it's it's a different kind of hero that I've ever seen before and I think they do such a good job with him and I think Chris Evans is so good and I think the first Avenger as a movie is just it's the period setting is so perfect the atmosphere is so good it was the first Marvel movie to have really good action to me it's not great but I think yeah. it's actually pretty compelling there's some really good there's one especially near the end where he gets on Red Skull's ship and he falls out of the ship with one of Red Skull's agents on this plane, and he has this fight on the plane, has to get back in the plane, and then fly back into the ship. Mm-hmm. It's a really good yeah. action sequence. And it's totally the kind of thing you would get in a Spielberg movie. So yeah. I love that. I just think everything about that movie is so well done, where they kind of they go back to show, okay, this is the first hero of the Marvel Universe. We set him up in World War II. We tell this great World War II story with him, and then we kind of very elegantly bring him into the future. Um... And end the movie with that, and you feel really bad for Cap because man, he got fucked. Yeah. But you know, it's I just think everything about that movie is so impressive to me. Yeah, yeah, I really, really love it. I always really like when you have because obviously you know you have the original Captain America comics like written in the forties, set in that time period. Those are Golden Age comics. Do not go back and read Golden Age comics. That is not. Just don't. Just don't. Okay. It, they don't work. They just don't work at all. But uh. I really like modern Captain America stories that are either have like flashbacks to him in that time period, or just straight up are telling Captain America stories of him like in the trenches or whatever in World War Two. It's just like it seems is you you because for most of Captain America's history now, he's not in World War Two, even though that's where he's from, that's his origin and all that stuff. It's like almost every Captain America story told at this point now is all Captain America in modern day doing you know modern day Captain America stuff, and you guys you lose sight of that side of the character, that perspective of the character that's like, dude, he was in fucking World War II. And especially, and although every once in a while they have some great moments where Captain America's, you know, with fucking Spider-Man and Peter Parker realizes like, oh wait, like there's something like Captain America will make an offhand comment but it's like, I punched Hitler in the fucking face. It's like, oh right, yeah, but you're like fucking 100 years old at this point. Right. But yeah, so they, it's great to have Captain America in like World War II. I always love those stories, and this movie makes such a good use of that time period. Well, what well, I'll say is that I uh, I realized this is a movie that really knows it's like film history and it's World War II history because I love how they specifically build Captain America and his character and persona as a function of the U.S. propaganda yeah, machine yeah, at the time. Yeah, he is a piece of propaganda. It's a great touch. Genius. And yeah. it's it's so true to what, you know, like Frank Capra, the Why We Fight series, all of that at the time. Yeah, and it's because Captain America is that. Like, that is where the character comes from. He is straight up a piece of American propaganda. Like, there's nothing else about it. And the fact that they make use of that in the movie to sort of, like, justify the character's existence and that like nowadays he doesn't have to be that like he doesn't just have to be a piece of American propaganda but back then you know like when I said don't read Golden Age comics one of the reasons is super fucking racist super especially Japanese during the World War II 
super fucking racist, incredibly uncomfortable to read in the modern context. And yeah, like, you know, that's what Captain America was. He was, you know, that's why you want a dude dressing the fucking Stars and Stripes punching Hitler in the face during World War II is that he's American propaganda, but the character can be so much more, and the movie gets that, and America, and the movie addresses that. And I think that's one of the reasons you can have Captain America work, because, you know, I get Captain America because I've read the comics and I understand the character, but I think most people, like you said, in the modern context, look at the character extremely cynically, look at him as a product of jingoism, which he rightly is, but he's evolved so much further beyond that. So if the movie had not addressed that, I don't think people would be able to accept it, but since the movie looked at it in the face, played with it, said it's like, we get it. We understand, we understand, like, there is this uncomfortable nationalistic side to the character, but then there's also, like, this pure good part of the character, and we want to bring that out and, like, address the negative components of it and sort of, like, do away with them. And it's just, it's so perfect. And I yeah. remember when I saw this movie for the first time and the Star Spangled Man song came on yeah. with his, you know, stage performance and I had a smile on my face that I've only rarely had in a theater where it's just like I'm yeah. a little like it's like I'm a little kid watching Star Wars. Yeah. That kind of smile. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it's so anyway, that was all our setup for the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Even as good as these have been and how promising they've been, even with some missteps, could anything have really prepared us for how good the Avengers wound up being? Fuck no. Like there's like right up till the day I saw it, I was in the back of my head just like this movie's fucking like this movie is either going to be amazing amazing or it's going to be the greatest train wreck in like movie history because because like it's still fucking amazing like you know I, I rewatched it about a month or two months ago now and when I saw it it was like it still is astounding to me that you can have a movie with like seven or eight main characters like they like Joss Whedon put in even more than he needed like you didn't need to have Nick Fury be as prominent or fucking Black Widow or Hawkeye be there it's like you don't need that like you've got fucking Cap you've got Hulk you've got Iron Man you've got Thor like you've got your four you've got your main dudes there it's, fuck it I'm gonna put in three more fucking incredible yes and I mean, I don't want to sound like one of those stupid fanboys who just worships at the altar of Joss Whedon. I respect him immensely as a writer, but I don't yeah. want to deify him. However, you cannot overstate what he did for this movie. Yeah, it's incredible. Because he wrote every single one of these characters better than they had been written before. Yeah. And all of their individual movies since then have taken a lot from what he did with them in this movie. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, he will be the key figure of the Marvel Cinematic Universe when you write the history of this. Because yeah. Avengers was the turning point and how he characterized them here. I mean, I think you go with Iron Man. He went, He was able to give Tony Stark as full or even fuller of an arc as he had in the other movies, yeah. but in this one movie where he's not nearly as prominent because mm-hmm. he's you know he's not the main character, he's a main yeah, character. Yeah, he's one of he's one of the seven. And at the same time, Whedon was also able to recognize that this can't be an Iron Man sequel. Iron Man doesn't appear for twenty five minutes. Yeah, uh, you know Tony Stark is not the main character. He's kind of the team leader in a sense. Um, but even not really then. They kind of, yeah, he kind of jockeys with Captain America for yeah, that position. And ultimately gives it over to Cap. Yeah. So, and with Cap in specifically, I love how he wrote Cap and what he gave Chris Evans to play, specifically with, you know, you can't, in this one movie where it's a lot of characters, give the full treatment of, all right, Cap is in the future now, what does yeah. that do to him? But you get a lot of it. Like, mm-hmm. just the way he'll react to certain things. Like, there's a great line where, um, I think it's, Black Widow is, is telling him, you know, a Thor is a god or something. Yeah. He says, I'm sorry, ma'am, there's only one god. It's yeah, like, no, it's when it's when uh, Thor and Loki, like, like Thor comes to get Loki out of the ship and they jump out, like, yeah. right before you have the requisite right. 
crossover scene where all the superheroes fight each other yeah. and they're like going this like are you going to Black Widow says, are you going to jump after them and it's like they are literally gods and then Captain America turns to her and says there's only one god ma'am and I don't think he dresses like that and then he jumps out <laughs> perfect it's, it's so a great. perfect it's a perfect fucking Captain America line like throughout the movie they show that he is old fashioned and from this past but not in a malicious way yeah like you know he might have some uncomfortable racial attitude somewhere, yeah. but they don't, they don't come from a mean place, and he would probably correct them pretty quickly. Yeah, the, he's yeah he's he's old fashioned, but he's yeah. like, but he's what this like what Captain America has to be is he's like the idealized version of the old fashioned, where he's it's almost like kind of you know how like Superman has like the the classic like Midwest American values, like yeah. it's that, it's or like even like he, how I remember yeah. my own like grandfather. Yeah, exactly. It's you like know, he it's... gets sort of like compassion and stuff like that, and understands like even if he has these weird in some ways like backwards attitudes in certain parts it's like he he gets it like yes. he's a good fucking guy he's a great fucking guy and and more than America. and I love how you know and it's one of the great things Joss Whedon did also is understanding alright we've got such vastly different power sets yeah. we've got a god we've got a Hulk we've yeah. got an Iron Man and we've also got you know Cap who's somewhere in the middle but then we've got Scarlet you know fucking I'm doing it now too yeah. we don't have Scarlet Witch yet we're yeah. gonna have it's that because, it's because it's fucking Scarlett Johansson so, yeah. playing Black Widow. Yes. So it's like, I'm thinking of like Scarlett Johansson and Black Widow at the same time, and then you've got Scarlet Witch, and Scarlet Witch is going to be Avengers 2, which is going to make it so much harder. Yes. But no, yeah. you've got you know, Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow, Jeremy Renner, Hawkeye, who, they couldn't exist in the real world, but they technically don't have superpowers. Yeah. But you have to, but he found a way to give all of them equal weight on the team. Yeah. And with Cap, what I love is that it's Captain America is a tactician, he's a soldier. Yeah. And that's so key to that Battle of New York at the end is he knows where to put everyone. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. Brilliant. And then, of course, with Thor, it's just he really furthered that wonderful Shakespearean style. Yeah. Loki is a huge part of this movie. Loki's great. Thor is actually in the movie not nearly as much as some of the other characters, but mm-hmm. his scenes count. Yeah, they, yeah they're really good. Really good. Yeah. And and I love the I mean I I love all the costumes in this movie. They're so much yeah. more overtly comic booky, and they're which is great. one of the great things about the Marvel movies is that they embrace the costume. You know, uh-huh. like I said, you know, making fun of like the Wolverine stuff. It's the tragic thing about the X Men movies originally is that they you know they took all these well they're hokey they're still cool costumes, and every X Men has like a thousand different costumes at this point that you could pick and choose from or like design like a new costume that takes the elements to make it more modern instead of this like nah everyone has a fucking you know like wearing like leather biking gear basically it's yeah like, well that's lame that's not cool it's like fuck you know you have fucking Loki wearing a golden helmet with giant goddamn horns that go like extend out and then go all the way back basically around his head that's what Loki looks like goddamn it and they're not afraid to do it you know Thor he very rarely puts it on but he still has a fucking silver helmet with wings on it he does, and in, he looks really cool in the movie, and I yeah. particularly love Cap's costume because it's super colorful. He wears yeah. the little cap on the top. Yeah. It's got the little, like, wing ears. Yeah. It's just, it's great. And, and you have it with all of them. And then, of course, so you've got those three characters, but the biggest one was, was Hulk. And, yeah. Mark, and both sides of it, because the Bruce Banner character is so compelling. Even in just a couple of scenes, the relationship between him and Tony Stark is perfect. And, and it's kind of the ideas of his relationship to the Hulk and how he treats that. Yeah. And Mark Ruffalo, great performance. But then when the Hulk comes out, you come out of the Avengers, everyone comes out of the Avengers being like, Hulk's the best! Yeah, Hulk is fucking cool. Yes. Hulk is strongest one of all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always angry. Punch that fucking thing, that yeah, giant... giant Chitauri worm monster, whatever yes. the fuck it is. Destroy the whole thing. And then, you know, probably my favorite moment in the movie from a pure, cool... You know, fanboy standpoint, which is Cap's giving all the orders. He gets to Hulk. He says, "Hulk, Hulk smash. smash!" 
And then Hulk just jumps up. Yeah, he just like, jumps up. And he smiles first, is yeah. the key thing. And then in one long take, he just goes and fucks up shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's just, it's the, the incredible thing about the movie. The movie, the thing that the movie does so well is balance all those different characters, which is particularly incredible when, like, it's like you have Hulk, who, like, at least Hulk is one of the few Marvel characters that people have a basic understanding of, because he had, like, the TV series, like, he's a simple character to understand the point of, so you have a good entry point for him, but still, like, you have to define him in this movie, in this universe, and it's like, you know, nobody saw it, nobody cares about the Incredible Hulk. You don't have Edward Norton. It's like you're making your basically your new version of the Hulk, and they introduce him in the movie, and they get him fucking perfect, and that's incredible. And by the time you get to the end, like the way that last action scene, the battle in New York, is choreographed, is so fucking incredible. It's so amazing how every single character feels critically important to the fight. You understand how all the characters are helping each other fight. You understand what the strategy of the fight is and how they're all contributing at all times. It's incredible. And I, one thing I want to say is the Avengers far and away has the best cinematography of any of these movies. I think Joss Whedon made a bold and really crucial choice. He shot this in the 16 by 9 aspect ratio. That's what your TV is, rather than the wide 2.35 to 1. That's what all the other Marvel movies are. It's what most modern blockbusters are. And I think most modern blockbusters actually don't need it. They don't really know how to use it. That space, it's a really demanding framing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the time it winds up pretty boring. The Marvel movies do it pretty well most of the time. I think um, Iron Man 3 used it great. Captain America uses it wonderfully. But with Avengers, you want that sense of height and scale yeah. so he puts it in the 16 by 9 and and just height becomes a thing and scale becomes a thing and so in that New York battle it's just you feel so immersed it's almost like the IMAX photography in the Dark Knight movies it's amazing yeah. and the other crucial thing is the color scheme of that movie it's so unique I've never yeah. seen a film that looks like that where the primary colors are all just kind of heightened even in a dark scene everything is still technically kind of bright yeah. it looks like a comic book yeah and it's amazing and then one of my favorite things about the way the movie is shot and like how the movie is constructed where you know you have the basic structure where you introduce kind of all the characters at the beginning after you know at the very very beginning you introduce the threat then you have to get all the Avengers together and in that portion of the movie where they're getting all the Avengers together the movie moves through a bunch of different color palettes and color tones that sort of go with the different heroes particularly it's really noticeable where you have the Iron Man sequence where it's like that like has like this very sort of like orange kind of warm tone to it that the John Favreau Iron Man movies had and then also the scene when Thor comes in to fight Loki and stuff, and he grabs Loki off of the ship and jumps away, and like they're having their like you know grand Shakespeare, like what uh, Iron Man says, you know Shakespeare in the park, and they're having that scene. It's like that has this very unique, very dramatic, like it's because it's this dark scene, and they're standing on fucking like Pride Rock from the Lion King, you know, <laughs> and like spouting off this like verily and thou bullshit to each other. It's like that has its own color palette, and then eventually everything comes together at the halfway point when all the Avengers are together and then the movie has a coherent color palette and kind of style from there on and it's like the way the movie is shot reflects the plot and the way the characters come together I think it's really well done it's amazingly well done and then I think that middle the second act of the movie which is all the stuff on the helicarrier Mm -hmm. um a, you have just this long stretch where you're just getting the character relationship sketched in. So you see not only how does Joss Whedon sort of define each of these characters individually, but as a unit. So I think yeah. the standout one is, of course, Bruce Banner and Tony Stark. Yeah. But you also have Tony Stark and Cap. Yeah. And Cap and Bruce Banner a little bit. You don't have a lot of Cap and Thor. A little disappointed in that. Yeah. I hope we get more of that. But other than that, everyone's crisscrossing. You see the different relationships. And I haven't even talked about how, you know, 
Um, Whedon's writing for Black Widow is so phenomenally better than it was yeah. in Iron Man 2. She, Scarlett Johansson's really good in the movie. I like Haw- Hawkeye is kind of underdeveloped, but I still like that character. Um, Nick Fury is more interesting than he was before. Yeah. Just all of it, just it just clicks. And then, you know, as good as that action sequence in New York is, and as multifaceted and just phenomenal as it is, I think that helicarrier sequence. I'm impressed by it every time, and I keep for- I always forget how good yeah. it is. The action sequence. There are so Especially, many pieces. I really in that love one. Thor fighting Hulk in that sequence, just because Thor and Hulk fighting is always that's a great yeah. fucking pair up because they're like the two strongest creatures that are like Galactus in the Marvel universe, you know? Yeah. So that's great, but while that's going on, you have Thor and Cap finally having to kind of work to get not Thor and Cap, Iron Man and Cap yeah. working together, and just all these different parts to it. It's it's really well done. So yeah. all of it, but you don't need you don't need us to tell you the Avengers is great. You know the Avengers is great because you spent one point five billion dollars on it, world. Yeah, yeah. Fucking that, shit. I mean, God, that movie, and it shows. It just proved Marvel's philosophy on everything because even though none of outside of the Iron Man movies, the Phase One films were like huge grocers, when Avengers came out and they all came together, fucking two hundred million dollar opening weekend, and everyone yeah. loved it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, yeah, it's a great, great, great fucking movie, and yeah. I am so excited. To see what Joss Whedon can do with this now that he is past the setup point. Yeah. Because I definitely, Avengers is a great movie. I really love it. I do feel a little bit of slowness in that first act when you're setting everything up. It's really good, yeah. but it's just as requisite. You, you can't be as, as sort of great as it is by the end. Whereas I, I think for Avengers 2, I'm so excited to see what he can do when it's not. I have to figure out yeah. how to introduce everyone as a unit. I'm really excited for the sequence in Avengers 2 where the existing Avengers, or like a part of these existing Avengers, have to fight Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch before they join the team. Yes. That's always the... And it's, he, it, it is a fucking ironclad rule you cannot disobey in comic books is when you have crossovers, the superheroes always have to fight each other. It doesn't matter how contrived it is, it doesn't fucking matter what kind of crazy bullshit you have to come up with. It's like they're fighting because it's just a practice. Or it's like one of the heroes is just an asshole and kicked the other one as soon as he saw him. It doesn't fucking matter. Which has is, to happen. Which is how the Avengers does it. Is Iron Man and Thor have no reason to fight. But yeah. they do it because Tony is just a dick. dick yeah. yeah it's, it's great. No, and, and that's the great thing about having Joss Whedon on board is, is he is a comic book dude. He yeah, he's it. a comic book writer. Like He's yeah. written some really great comic books. Imagine how good the X-Men series could be if they had Joss Whedon yeah. working on it. Well, let's not, let's not you know, cry ourselves to sleep tonight. Yes, I, it's too bad. But anyway, yeah, Avengers was great. And then I think the Phase 2 film since then, we don't need to talk about them a ton because we've already gone over them, but... Yeah. I really loved Iron Man 3. You liked a lot about it and had some problems. Yes, well, the Mandarin bullshit is bullshit. Okay. Um, but anyway, I mean, and that was another one where I thought bringing Shane Black on board, letting him make, you know, kind of a, a Shane Black-style Iron Man movie where it worked really well. I think the character development in that is great. It's really good. And then Thor 2 was the movie where Fucking it's like, awesome. we're going to have fun and fuck it if people think it's too silly because yeah. this is great. It's, yeah, like Thor 2 is such a pure pure fucking comic book movie it's incredible it's it's a very fun movie yeah um it is I will say it's got some of my least favorite cinematography in the franchise if we want to talk about that I think I like the sure. production design elements and stuff really well but I thought particularly in kind of how it adapts to sort of widescreen compositions and it's color palette it's too dark for my tastes I think the color 
For fuck's sake, dude. It's called For the Dark World. What were you expecting? I mean, it's on. just... It's, it, the word dark is in the title. I just think one of the things I like about the Marvel movies from a production standpoint is most of them use color interestingly, and I think mm. a lot of modern movies, the color is just there. Um, and I think the color is not... It, they're clearly doing something with it, but I don't fully like what they're doing with it in, uh, in Thor 2. But Thor 2 was really fun. I remember seeing it for the first time, and I just hadn't... I didn't know anything. I just, I, like, it took me two weeks to see the movie for some reason. It was a really busy month. And I finally got to see it. I really hadn't read any reviews or anything. And I just, I didn't know it would have Thor walking into an apartment and hanging his hammer. Yeah, on the coat rack. And so it was just such a a wonderful surprise. Yeah. It just, it makes you feel good about humanity. Yeah. Because we can, we made that. That's okay. So. We've done some horrible, awful fucking shit. But hey. We made Thor 2. We got that as a, we should, you know, when we send another fucking thing into space to go to encounter with an extraterrestrial species, we should put a Thor 2 DVD with a fucking TV on it. Yes, yeah, so it's like, we see, we can have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I know we did all the genocide shit, and we've done it, like, multiple times, but hey, we made this really awesome movie. We made a whole bunch of these really awesome movies, and they all have crossovers and shit in it. Like, it's, yep. all, it's almost, it's like... We saw how awesome the old Godzilla movies were with their crossovers, and we're like, hey, we've got all these other characters, and we can do that today. Yep. I mean, it's just... And the thing is, I feel like we're only at the tip of the iceberg, because we've got Captain America 2 to come, yeah. which, um, you know, has been getting rave reviews. We've got Guardians of the Galaxy, which is going to be like, you know, unlike anything we've done before. Yeah. We've got Avengers 2. Yay. Yeah. We've got Ant-Man being done by fucking Edgar Wright. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you know, it's just they're 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 making plans, and it sounds cool. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about some one shots. Okay, sure. So generally, there's a couple Marvel movies we feel are of lesser quality, but overall, we really like these films. Yeah. We feel they're vibrant, creative, distinctive. Yes. Would you say any of that about the Marvel one shots? <laughs> kind of the Iron Man three one. No. Or not the well, the one with with Mandarin, which is on Thor two. Yes. All right. If you don't know the Marvel one shots, they started with the Thor Blu Ray. And the one on that was called... Slipcase doesn't have the information. What so is slipcases? I'm told you should just okay. throw the slipcase. This is a cool away. one. Look at that. Yeah, well... Yeah, slipcase. That's me. I've got, I've, got, you know, I've got that comic, so... Okay. Uh, no, it was called... The, the first one was called The Consultant, and I, I remember that one. The first couple, the one on the Thor and Cap Blu-rays, were basically like three-minute shorts. The Cap one is like something about funny thing happened on the way to Thor's hammer. They're kind of funny little, you know, joke um, short films, but they're not all that interesting. They're just kind of there. They kind of have other elements of the Marvel Universe in them, but they're not all that compelling. They kind of got a little more ambitious starting with the Avengers Blu-ray where they had the one-shot Item 47. So, Sean, you and I watched this one together. What the fuck was the point of that? I don't know. I don't know. It was was weird. It was a weird weird thing. If you haven't seen Item 47, what it is is it starts out, it's this man and woman... Kind of Pulp Fiction style, although not nearly as interesting. Um, they, they're like robbers. They're going to rob some stuff. And as they go to rob a bank, you realize they have one of the Chitari guns from yeah. the battle in New York. And they've made it work, and now they're robbing banks with it. Kind of funny. I literally today came from a screening of the 1967 Bonnie and Clyde uh, in my film class over here to watch this yeah. and it's about a man-woman couple well, it's Bonnie we know what Bonnie and Clyde is yeah. no need to explain I'm explaining what item 47 oh. is yeah okay. you know what Bonnie and Clyde is item 47 is the same archetype yeah. that's okay. what I'm explaining yes so that was just kind of funny this was not nearly as interesting um and basically, if I'll just we'll just spoil these. Yeah, it's, it's it's like five minutes long. And yeah, this one was like ten minutes, and it's they're robbing some banks. Then at the end, Shield comes to catch them, and Shield catches them, and 
S.H.I.E.L.D. hasn't been able to make any of the Chitauri weapons work. And they realize these guys have gotten it to work, so they hire them both as agents, and then the movie ends, and none of it made any goddamn sense. Yeah. So. And there was, like, a lot of weird shots that hung, like, for a lot longer than they needed to. Like, did yes. you get that sense, too? It was just yeah. Like, there's, like, three or four shots that is, like, this shot has gone on for, like, 40 seconds, and nothing has happened. Like, why did you cut? Like, fucking cut. What are you doing? Yeah. That was weird. It's, like... The characters have no motivation or character to them, really. Yeah, and the thing is, like, just like just to say right now that it's like, you know, I was not going into... Because I have not seen any of these. You brought over your Blu-rays so we could watch them. And going into it, my ideal for the Marvel one-shot is I'm not expecting it to be a great short film. I Like, I, you know, I'm not trying to set my expectations high as it being like... It, like, you know, like how Pixar short films are fucking awesome. I'm not, like, setting my sights that high. I'm just setting my bar of, like... I want it to have some cool fan service, basically. I want it to be like, hey, this adds an extra dimension to, like, this, like, small Marvel character from this movie or something. Or, like, you know, this makes some reference to other Marvel characters. Or maybe even has a really lesser-known Marvel character in it. That's, like, that's what I want. Because I think that's the one thing they can really do is add a small extra element for the fans to the Marvel Universe. The item 47 one did not do... In no way... I do not care about how S.H.I.E.L.D. maybe acquired or learned how to use Tori weapons. Like, that's not... No, they feel just, I don't... That's doesn't, it doesn't add anything to, like, the rest of the Marvel Universe. It's like, oh, that's interesting. That's how that happens. Like, nope. It's like, oh, that was a thing. Yeah. It's like they're purely incidental. And we'll talk about the other ones. They're basically the same thing. And it's just... It's really kind of... And even though there's, they have actually very good production values... They've got kind of top-notch actors in these in some cases. Like, Titus Welliver is in this one. He's the yeah. S.H.I.E.L.D. boss. He's a good actor. He's, you know, mostly like a TV actor, but he's a, you know, he's a good actor. I wouldn't necessarily to expect to see him in something this kind of plot-wise low-rent, yeah. you know? So it's kind of funny. Although I did say to Sean after we watched it, if the dude robber in this had been played by Colin Farrell, mm-hmm. this would have been my favorite thing ever because he's good at playing that kind of bumbling idiot like robber guy. Yeah. And if you put him into this super lame story, it would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't do that. They um, were just a super lame story. Yeah. They did not the, have Colin The Farrell. only thing I could think of is, are these possibly characters in that bad ABC show, Marvel's Agents of I'm, S.H.I.E.L.D.? Like, I'm like, but I don't think so, yeah. yeah. So, who knows. The one that really disappointed me, however, was the one on the Iron Man 3 Blu-ray, which is the uh, Agent Peggy Carter short. Now, if you've seen Captain America the First Avenger, you know Peggy Carter is Cap's love interest in that, and I really liked that character Mm -hmm. in the First Avenger movie. Uh, Haley Atwell is really good as it. She and Chris Evans had great chemistry. So I was excited. I thought this is the perfect thing for them to do. Take that character, tell a good little short film story with her. Yeah. Did they do that? No. I, what the f- what again? What the fuck was the point of this? I don't know. So yeah, this one, the Peggy Carter one, is like Peggy Carter. It's after World War Two, and everybody's sexist because it's like the fifties and everyone's sexist. Even though they weren't at all in Captain America: The First Avenger. Yeah, well, because they don't. I mean, let's be fair. Captain America had that movie had other stuff to deal with. That's not sexism. Like but I don't begrudge I, this movie I, for including sexism. As I don't begrudge it for. I do not begrudge it for including sexism. However, my big issue was I don't understand how Peggy Carter went from co-running a major American platoon going after Hydra in First Avenger to doing a desk job for some little backwater government agency Jonathan, in this movie. I have a word for you. It's called sexism. I still don't get it. She's th- like. I, 
Wouldn't sexism? Wouldn't Tommy Lee Jones have put in a good word for her? Like she had all these high-ranking officials who liked her in the first Avenger. Yeah, but Does that like just... the guy said, the war's over. Like she doesn't. They don't need her to do anything anymore. Okay, I just so I don't know. They're going to just be sexist. Like that's. So and anyway, here's how this movie goes. I think so she... you're just being sexist right now, Jonathan. So let me explain really quickly, so I can get to my next point here. Okay, is that so? <laughs> So, yeah, she's got this desk job. She hates it. All the men who... Again, they've got fucking Bradley Whitford in this. Yeah. And he's like the sexist boss guy. And, and they're all getting these assignments. And they're not letting her come with them. It's like, you know, playing on the playground at lunchtime. They won't let her sure. play with them. Yeah. And, and they go out and do stuff. And then one night, they're all gone. And a, a mission comes in. And so Peggy takes it herself. And basically, she just has to beat up the world's most inept bad guys. Yeah, who, and it doesn't even... I have no idea who the fuck those guys were. Like, I don't know, because it's like the item she was getting is like Zodiac. I don't, like, that's probably a reference to a Marvel thing that I'm not cognizant of. She's getting a MacGuffin. Yeah, she's all. basically, it's, it's probably a reference to something. I just don't know what it's from. But, like, the guys guarding it, it's like in the mid, like, this warehouse. There's like five dudes, and they're dude, they're, it's not like, oh, they're like these guys who look like warehouse, like, dock workers, but they're really secret agents. Like, no. They're straight up just like warehouse dock workers, and one of them happens to have a Tommy gun, and then one of them's also really buff. And there's a, they have a gas mask there, but one gas mask, and I don't know why, I don't know where they had it, but one of the guys needs to get a gas mask, because yeah. Peggy Carter uses gas on them. So anyway, she gets the MacGuffin, she comes back. The, the, the Zodiac thing. The like, sexist, it's the Zodiac yeah. thing, at the very least. It would be more interesting if she was going after the Zodiac killer, a la David yeah. Fincher. But unfortunately, that's several decades later. So. Yes. So anyway, um... But yes, yeah, so this happens. She gets the MacGuffin. She comes back. The sexist guys are still sexist to her. But then uh, Howard Stark, played Who's by... In, again, I made this comment when we were watching the movie, that the Starks have never been accused of or have anyway exhibited sexism themselves. <laughs> yes, like, so anyway, yeah. Howard Stark, played by Starks. played by Dominic Cooper, yeah, as in uh, yeah. the first adventure, he calls up, says, hey, you want to run S.H.I.E.L.D. with me? Well, he says this to Bradley Whitford and says, she's going to run S.H.I.E.L.D. with me. And, he's like, and they're like, all right. So then she's going to go run S.H.I.E.L.D., and it's like, so really the only point of this is to tell us that she's going to go run S.H.I.E.L.D. So my next question is, if this is the case, we know Howard Stark was into Haley Atwell's character yeah. in the first adventure. Oh, right, yeah. They're not only possibly lovers, they're friends, they know each other, he respects her deeply, we see all of that. Again, how does she end up at this desk job if fucking Stark Industries, the head of, loves this woman and knows she's capable of things? How did it take this long? The, the whole... There's no he, logic to this. Howard Stark has a lot of shit on his plate. Being a raging fucking sexist. Most of the time, <laughs> except for in this one Contact. peculiar instance. Which the best part would be where he calls up the dude and says, like, like you know, she's going to run S.H.I.E.L.D. with me. If It would be great if, like, the short didn't end and we actually saw her, like, go to wherever, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. is <laughs> in this universe. And she's just his, like, glorified secretary, basically. Yes. And he's just, like, horribly sexist to her and, like, sexually harasses her constantly. Because her. that's what would happen! It's fucking Howard Stark! Like, what do you think? It's, he's not this bastion of fucking gender relations. He's, like, going to get fucking sued for sexual harassment if it wasn't the 50s. <laughs> So the only thing I can think of in terms of significance with this short is maybe there will be references in the new Captain America movie to Shield being started by Peggy Carter. Yeah, and and like and in the mon in Marvel comics, Peggy Carter Carter's daughter, which which should probably be granddaughter at this point because of how far the fucking yes. time scale has been stretched, is Sharon Carter, and she's a like Captain America love interest and a very prominent character in Agent of Shield. She is in um the the Winter Soldier movie. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. yeah, so yeah. there. Yes. So yes. Um. Anyway. So yeah. 
I was I was disappointed in this because I thought I liked that character so much you could have done something interesting. Even if it was you went a really weird route and had her go to Howard Stark and you find out she's Iron Man's mother because she and Howard Stark like have sex and and then she has yeah. Tony. That was like hilarious. at the very least from this I was like because I you know ignoring the like having interesting fan service or that kind of like aspect of the short. At the very least it could have had like a compelling fight. You know, because it's like yeah. half the, the short was her infiltrating that warehouse. It's like the action in that was so nothing, especially because you had no idea who the villains were. It's like they were not interesting. There's these weird bumbling guys, and then one really strong dude with a gas mask, and that's it. It's yeah. like, what the fuck is that? No, there's no reason to give a shit about any of yeah. this. And since it's, you know, a Marvel thing, for whatever reason, she didn't just go in there and kill everybody, even though that's totally what she should have done, is just go in there and shoot everybody. Like, she had a gun. Like, you are a fucking, like, agent of, like, the American government. Go in there and shoot everybody. And we know, and again, it's kind of funny, in the first... It seems like the people who made this did not watch the Captain America movie. Mm -hmm. Because in the Captain America movie, she doesn't do any kung fu stuff. She's just a really good shot. Like, there's that whole scene where she shoots a guy in a car from, like, two blocks away. And that's her thing. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she coped with the death of Steve Rogers by... (laughs) By, like, throwing herself into Eastern martial arts. Yes. I maybe and even then, that would have been a more interesting short film to do is show her fucking learning like Bruce Lee shit like like Kill Bill style where it's yeah, like exactly. yeah it's just it, the entire Marvel one shot is just her training montage yes. that's it like, sure oh. I'd be fine with that alright uh, the last one the newest one on the Thor 2 Blu-ray and I want to mention one thing about these Blu-rays uh, I had missed a couple of these um before we decided to do this segment. Yeah. So around the time the Thor 2 Blu-ray came out last month, I was like, I should get all of them. Make yeah, sure I have sure. them. Fill in some of the gaps. If, for the love of God, if you like Marvel movies, buy them the day they come out or it's kind of hard to get them. Huh. Because Disney, when they put out their Blu-rays, they don't... They pull them out of stores almost immediately. So like, I could not get Iron Man 3 in any store. I had to go get it on Amazon, but then on Amazon it was really expensive because they had no sale price. So I'm like, I'm not going to pay 30 bucks for this. So I finally found it on eBay new for like 15 and I snatched it up. I'm like, that's better. Um, And then when Thor 2 came out, I I bought it day one because then it's on sale and you can get it easily anywhere you want. But yeah, the way Disney, I I keep forgetting now that Disney is putting these out. Disney's kind of Blu-ray home video practices are kind of shady in that way. Mm -hmm. So just if you want these movies, get them the week they come out, get a good sale price, don't expect like the the first time Iron Man three had been on sale since it came out was actually this week for Winter Soldier, and even then it was only down to twenty bucks. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, Thor two Blu ray. It's got a short called uh, All Hail, Hail the King. All Hail the King, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And this is with they got friggin' Ben Kingsley back. Yeah, playing his character from Iron Man three. Iron Man 3. Uh, Trevor Slattery, who's yeah. the Mandarin stand-in. And it's it's him in jail, and it's him having some antics. I thought exactly the same way about this as I did the other two. But I thought this one was better. Okay. I thought it was more interesting. Because, like, one... Like, you know, sure, Peggy Carter was an important character to Captain America, but, like, they didn't... In that short, they didn't do anything with her. And it's like, you got so little of Ben Kingsley's actual character in Iron Man 3. That's like, at least, like, sure. I don't like his character in Iron Man 3. I don't like what they did with Mandarin and Iron Man 3 I think that is the most atrocious part of that whole fucking movie and fuck it fuck it but hey Ben Kingsley is a good actor the character if you extract it from the way it's used in the plot I think is kind of funny so it's like you get some more of that and sure like I thought that part of it was better executed I thought it just like had a more sense of a style than the other ones and then like the big thing that happens is like okay like he's in jail and he's being interviewed by Jack Norris 
who is like a very minor character from modern Marvel stuff. But uh, he's getting interviewed by Jack Norris, and then you find out that Jack Norris is a agent for the actual Ten Rings, and he's like working for the real Mandarin that actually exists, and he's going to kill Ben Kingsley. But before that, he's going to kidnap Ben Kingsley so he can be probably like roasted alive by the Mandarin or whatever. Of course, here was an interesting issue for me. So you start the short with yeah. Jack Norris giving this inner monologue about his journalistic mission, which I don't know why he would be giving that inner monologue because it's a yeah, front. That was it's weird. Just a, it's just a, it's, it makes no sense for the plot, but it's just functional to set up the premise of the short. Yeah. In the but very then small of time. I, I get that. But then he then he reveals like his hand, or you think he does, where he's like, you know, um, you you know besmirched the name of the Mandarin, so we are going to put you know ten bullets in you or something. Yeah. And he's getting a gun ready. So he's very clearly indicating I'm going to kill you. But then he changes it one more time at the end. It's like, I'm, I'm not actually killing you. We're taking you to have a chat with the real Mandarin. Well, so, I thought the implication was that the Mandarin was going to fucking kill him. because I guess, but it was, yeah. just, it was kind of funny. Um, no, and I, I just, I didn't think the writing was very interesting. I thought, I, I laughed at the Ben Kingsley character in Iron Man 3. I thought his stuff was funny. I thought the writing here just lacked any sort of bite. Um, the jail scenes didn't have any really pop to them or anything. And then, and then the final scenes, it's just... None of it was all that interesting to me. The one good joke out of all these one-shots was the fake pilot Trevor Slattery apparently shot, <laughs> yeah. where he was a KGB agent as a cop in America. Yeah, and his license plate was KGB cop. That was good. That was a good joke. That was good, and you got to see, like, old Ben Kingsley pretending to be young see, yeah, Ben Kingsley. Young, it is, like, in no way convincing. Like, the only way that you can kind of accept it is that the video quality is really appropriately shitty. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, and I think... You know, I don't know, maybe something will come of this, although I kind of doubt it, because I don't think they're setting up any major plots in their one-shots. Probably not, yeah. But, you know, um, didn't but do anything it's, for me. But it's, and this is like, it, it's the only one of these that does any of the fan service thing that I was talking about, and maybe it especially kind of warms my heart because of how much I hate that twist in Iron Man 3 and wish that the Mandarin was just a proper villain. It's just the idea that it's like, somewhere in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Mandarin actually exists, and he's fucking pissed about the way he was using this movie. Like, I think they make a pretty good use of kind of, like, addressing the fact that that character is controversial, you know, with the fan base. And that, like, hey, you know, the Mandarin's real. He's out there somewhere, goddammit. And he's got ten magic rings, hopefully. That's fine. I think it's an interesting idea. I thought executionally it was as dull as the other ones, so, oh well. But, hey, like I said, it is literally the only one that has any sort of hint to the largest cinema Marvel Universe like at all so hey who knows those two characters in item 47 could be like the new protagonists of really Avengers holding, 2 do you really holding on hope that it's like we get to see those guys again no I'm not holding on hope I'm yeah. just saying I hope they knows? get their own movie like, like we don't need any other Marvel movies now that those characters are out there doing whatever working on Chitauri weapons tech for S.H.I.E.L.D. which I guess somehow that bank robber dude is a fucking genius I don't know if he was a genius like, why how, is he robbing banks? Yeah, exactly. Like, if this dude's so smart, he is able to take these alien weapons that just drop from the literally drop from the fucking sky out of a dimensional portal, and they are all broken so much so that like Shield couldn't figure out how to get them to work, and he manages to figure it out. And the best thing he can do with his amazing fucking brilliant goddamn intelligence that rivals like Jeff Goldblum being able to hack a fucking alien spaceship with a Mac and Independence Day, like that's how fucking smart this dude is. You, like, why are you robbing banks? 
like, like sell, like, like take apart the alien gun and figure out how it works and revolutionize the modern science. Become like the greatest fucking entrepreneur in the modern world. They become the new Einstein asshole. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> at the very least, go apply for a job at yeah. Shield. <laughs> you know, it's like... exactly. Like, why, why, like, why are you robbing banks with? Your girlfriend, like, yeah, at least <laughs> so I, dumb. The short is so fucking stupid. Item forty-seven is a total wash. At least those yeah. other two are decent. You know, bonus features you get to yeah, see. Yeah, at more. least you get to see like the characters from the movies return. Yeah, you know? that's that's better. But oh well, um, <laughs> we'll see. Like, I'm wondering because they're like a movie behind on these. So on the yeah, Cap Two Blu-ray, will we get something from Thor Two? Yeah, well, these were from Thor. Like, here's. From at least from Thor, you have three characters. You have the Warriors three, and then you also have Sif. You can totally do something with them. Like that's exactly do, what I would do. You could even do something with the Earth characters. Like if you want to do sure. a, a Cat Denning short, she's funny enough in those. I would rather see the Warriors three. I would rather see them yeah. two Warriors three meeting the Cat Denning's characters. Sure. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah. Yeah. And they have a yeah exactly. Sure. Like you know, at the end of Thor two, we have here. I'll write. I'll write it for you. We have at the end of Thor two. There's that beast got free in um, in London. Right. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. What the Warriors three have to go down to Earth, fight that thing. Mm-hmm. They meet the Cat character. She helps him out. That's something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can get Stellan Skarsgård in there, but Hopefully. he feels like he's an, a more like A level character in these movies because he's in all of them now. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Like he's the one Thor side character who was in. Um, in Avengers. Hey, there was that headshot of Natalie Portman. She was in <laughs> That's there That's true. Don't, yeah. don't sell her short. Yeah. But again, I mean, if you can get Stellan Skarsgård in your movie, do it. He's yeah. awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Anyway. So, <laughs> all right. Anything else to talk about with any of these? I think we covered no, it. Like, like I said, I think the only one to me that was like, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm glad I watched that was the Ben Kingsley one. Okay. So, and actually the Thor 2 Blu-ray, it's good to buy. It's got some other good bonus features on it. It's got actually a decent kind of making of thing. At least you get to hear kind of the actors and directors kind of talk about their characters and stuff. And it's got fucking Thor 2 on it. It's got Thor 2 on there, yes. And um, sadly, it's one of the only 3D Blu-rays I own because it's the only version of Thor 2 that has a slipcover. And all my other Marvel movies have slipcovers, so I had to buy the 3D version. I told you this before, Jonathan. Just throw all the slipcovers away. I like them. And you will never have this issue. I think they're cool. Because one day in the future... One will come up, come out that will not have a slipcover no matter what, and you will be fucked. Just rip off the band-aid now. That's what I would do. No, I like them. They're cool. Like, and it becomes a problem with like Iron Man 2 or Iron Man because you've got the slipcover as the title, but the fucking thing doesn't. That's your well, case. You, you, hey, I've got a, something for you. It's a goddamn Sharpie, okay? <laughs> well, that, doesn't, that takes away the point altogether. You can you can print out other new better box art. You can print out the box if, art that's on the slipcover and I put it in the case. If I don't have the slipcover, I can't read the MPAA rationale for the PG thirteen rating. Yeah, well, I've got another thing for you, Jonathan. It's called the internet. Yes. Okay. Well, anyway, this is our podcast next week, all about the philosophy of slipcovers. Exactly. I think we should just rebrand our podcast to the Slipcover Weekly. Yes. Yeah. Actually, we're going to be talking about Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Very excited for that. Yes. Um. And then we'll see what we talk about from there. Probably stuff.